You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 129 of the Common Descent Podcast, the last episode of the year 2021. To finish off the year, this episode, we are talking about rhinos. Rhinos. Rhinos, of course, the iconic, charismatic, famous group of mammals that we've gone 128 episodes without talking very much about. Notoriously not a fan of spiders. So that that's true. Uh, real, real <laughs> enmity in there. <laughs> we are going to talk about rhinos today, which is not a lot of rhinos, uh, mm-hmm. and fewer, fewer with all the passing time. And the extensive evolutionary history and really impressive fossil record of rhinos. We'll talk about rhinos through time, all the various forms that rhinos have taken. Spoilers, they a lot of them didn't look like rhinos. Yeah. It's been an, a fascinating group over time. And we will also take some time to talk a little bit about a few of the things that aren't rhinos, but that you might easily mistake for rhinos well, that did their darndest some of the convergence some of the uh imposters <laughs> the flatterers uh actually many of them came before rhinos as we know them so yeah, yeah blah, blah. <laughs> we will be talking about rhinos and all the things in this episode as usual because they were requested in particular this episode is sort of a combination of answering a bunch of requests we got a bunch of requests for rhinos We've gotten requests for specific groups of ancient rhinos. We've gotten requests for just more talk about perissodactyls, which rhinos are. And we got a couple of requests to talk about things that aren't rhinos but are like rhinos from the past. All of these various requests came from Jonathan, Renee, Joel, Felix, Alex, Varun, Big Boss Man, Nick, Bill, Hobart, and... Our most insistent and persistent rhino requester, our friend Jenna. Uh, yeah. She has asked about that, hasn't a, she? A couple times. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're finally doing it, so stay tuned. Uh, it This is a lot of fun. I had a ton of fun learning about rhinos for this episode. I learned a bunch of new things that I did not appreciate before this. I'm excited to get to the discussion. Yeah, it's a cool group, so that's, I'm looking forward to learning about them. But first, a few announcements, starting with our Patreon. We have a Patreon, and if you are a subscriber on Patreon, not only do you contribute to making sure that the podcast keeps going, to supporting our science education efforts, but also you get to enjoy some cool goodies like bonus content, and at a specific level, when you subscribe as a new patron, we will shout your name out on the podcast, and it goes a little something like this. This episode, we would like to welcome to our patronage, Anna, Joshua, Sarah, Jacob, and the Fast Apples. (laughs) Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you very much to all of our patrons, to all of our listeners. And hey, if you'd like to support what we do in a financial Patreon sense, consider subscribing. As I said, this is the last episode of the year. Well, it's the last main series episode of the year. There will be another episode after this. And that is our end of the year Q&A. Mm-hmm. Every year we do a big answering questions extravaganza. This year is 
the same. It'll come out right at the end of the year where we will spend a number of hours answering a long list of questions submitted by our listeners uh, from November through December. So keep your ears out for that. Then it will be a whole new year and we will return with more main series episodes and some extra special stuff. Yes. Because next month, January, is a special month. Because at the end of it is our official five-year anniversary. Yep. We will have been podcasting for five years. Five years. How about that? Crazy. It sure is. We did it. So stay tuned for updates and information about some of the special things we have planned uh, for January and then also for later in the year. We've got some exciting thoughts. But for now, let us move on to the first major section of our episode, the news. News! As you know, if you're a long-time listener, every episode we like to gather up some news from the world of paleontology, evolution, life history, the kind of things that keep everybody up to date together. Will, would you like to start us off with some uh, so one of our last newses of 2021? Yes, Crocs. Oh, well, oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Ring in the new year correctly. <laughs> this is news about an ancient croc, a cousin of modern crocs, with very modern croc-like features. Uh, and it's one of the earliest to show some of these features. This is research by Junki Yoshida et al. in the Royal Society Open Science Journal. Uh, and the article is by Mindy Weisberger on from Live Science. So this is about a group of ancient, you know, extinct crocodiliforms called the Goniophilididae, which are Neosuchians, close to the Eusuchia, which includes modern crocs and gators, the true crocodiles. Right. So not quite modern crocs, but close to modern crocs. They're related to them and the pair Alligatoridae. So they're close to those groups, which is another extinct group close to modern crocodiles. So it's near, but not quite true crocs. These were northern hemisphere animals uh, around during the Jurassic to early Cretaceous. And they are notable for being one of the first in the crocodiliforms to take on what we recognize as a modern crocodilian shape. Okay. That, flat, you know, lowered body, flattened face, longer snout, eyes on top of the head, and secondary palate inside the mouth that separates the nasal passage from the nose to the back of the throat from the inside of the mouth to the back of the throat which has led to them being considered semi-aquatic like today's crocs. Now, these features are not particularly unique to any of these groups. We've seen these features in lots of other animals, but there is one thing that's very important to today's crocs that allows them to be effective semi-aquatic predators, and it is the guler valve, or the palatal flap, which is a part of basically the tongue the back of the tongue that can flip up and meet with the roof of the mouth to seal off the back of the croc's throat. Uh, to prevent all that water from getting in. Yes, so that while they're biting something underwater, they're not also swallowing half the lake. So they don't drown or swallow too much water, either or. What this also allows them to do, though, is breathe through the nose while their mouth is occupied as long as their nostril can make it above the water. Oh, a handy, a handy tool splits the airway and allows them to keep breathing. So that secondary palate, that separation of the nasal and mouth opening, and this valve are key aspects of how crocodilians hunt today. Gotcha. So they can breathe through the nose while eating, like we can. Yes, exactly. Now, 
the secondary palette is known from, you know, today's crocs, but also the goniophyllidids and the paralgeterids. But we don't know much about the valve evolutionarily. Right. I would imagine that's a soft tissue thing. It mostly is. There are, though, some aspects of it. The valve is made up of a couple of parts, some which are cartilaginous and do not fossilize. Others are fleshy and also do not fossilize. But there are some bony materials in there, some serratobranchials that do fossilize potentially. And that is where this research comes in. This research is looking at a new species from this group of uh, crocodiliforms which has been named Amphicotylus milesi. It is the best preserved gonifolidid from Wyoming here in the U.S., uh, around 155 million years old. It's estimated to be a total measure, if it were alive, of about 7.5 feet, so 2.3 meters. Uh, A Uh, a decent-sized, not a croc I want to fight. Yeah, not not too bad. Would have weighed around 500 pounds, 227 kilograms. Not a croc I want to fight. It also has one of the biggest known skulls from this uh, group of crocs. The skull measures at 17 inches, 43 centimeters, with the snout being about 60% of that length, which is a very modern croc skull shape. That's, that's a familiar structure. Yep, so it's fitting into that uh, semi-aquatic anatomy. It also showed unfused sutures in a lot of the bones, suggesting that it was still growing. It was uh, not a fully grown adult, so a younger individual. Uh, They estimate that a fully grown uh, individual could have been up to pushing 12 feet long, you know, 3.7 meters, and upwards of 700 pounds or 300 kilograms. They looked at this very nice specimen, which has some of those serratobranchials preserved. They looked at the it from a phylogenetic standpoint, but also to try to see, did it have one of these valves? They examined the size and shape of structures in the skull, but as well as these small bones. They found a lot of similarities between it and modern crocs, and seems to suggest that it did indeed have a guler flap. Interesting. It had a valve, making it the earliest known, uh, or at least earliest with evidence of having this flap, this valve. Uh, so the earliest crocodiliform that seemed like it could eat whilst underwater or, you know, kill prey whilst underwater, which means that the type of feeding we see in today's crocs could go back all the way to the Jurassic. Cool. Which is significant because that's a major aspect of how they hunt. Like, that's key to the behavior we see today. This is also notable because we see similar features in the skulls of other crocodilian and crocodiliforms, you know, extinct members which could indicate that they also had valves, but we don't have the evidence to confirm that like we do with this individual. And so this is the earliest evidence of that specialized feeding behavior. This reminds me of a handful of times we've talked about trying to study ancient tongues Mm -hmm. and how you don't get fossil tongues, but you can study some of those throat bones to sort of interpret that in both that it is difficult and rarely preserved evidence to be able to make those inferences, but also that it's a really interesting uh, piece of evidence for fossil behavior. Yes. That we can, it's, it's much easier to study the evolution of certain anatomical structures or shapes, but it's much harder to figure out when did this familiar behavior show up? And that's a very cool thing to be able to interpret. Yeah. And it, well, and it tells us a lot about what, you know, 
when we would have seen crocodilian like ambush hunting at the waterline and being able to you know kill things by drowning them yeah uh stuff like that not not only when were crocs looking like crocs but when were they acting like crocs yep well while we're on the subject of comparing modern day archosaurs to extinct archosaurs i've got a bit of news about coloration across birds and other archosaurs Ooh, neat This is research by Sarah Davis and Julia Clark in the journal Evolution. And in the blog post, we will link to a press release from UT News. Birds are often pretty colorful. So I've heard. This is kind of a characteristic (laughs) thing about birds. Most of the time when we think of bird colors, we're thinking about their feathers, right? Their plumage. But they can also be colorful in other tissues. Birds' skin and scales and beaks and claws can have color to them. So, for example, you know, you can think of birds whose feet are pink or orange and the beaks can often be brightly colored and the eye, you know, often the skin around the eyes in some birds can be colorful. In many of those cases, the color is the result of a group of pigments called carotenoids. These are especially responsible for bright yellows, reds, and oranges. But trying to understand the history of these particular pigments is tough. Because melanin pigments, which are the ones that give us your browns and blacks, fossilize much better than carotenoids do. Right, right, right. So we've talked about evidence of fossilized melanin pigmentation in dinosaur feathers and things like that. These brighter color pigments are tougher to study in the fossil record. And that makes it harder to understand the patterns of coloration and the evolutionary history of those color patterns. This study takes the approach, like a lot of studies we've talked about, of examining how these pigments show up in a lot of modern animals to interpret their evolutionary history. So they looked at color patterns, and uh, the the way they phrased it is carotenoid-consistent color patterns, (laughs) which makes it sound to me like we're looking at the kinds of colors that are produced by carotenoids, but not necessarily that it is 100% always that the carotenoids are responsible for these colors. Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) They looked at this across a variety of living reptiles, including turtles, crocs, and all birds that don't belong to the passerine group, which is the group that includes songbirds and an enormous percentage of modern-day birds. Yep. So they looked at a little more than 4,000 modern species of birds. Wow. Plus crocs and turtles. And they examined the patterns of coloration they see and use that information to slap the info onto a phylogenetic evolutionary tree to see if they can figure out patterns of evolutionary history of these things. And here's some of the stuff they found. For one, they noted that more than half of the birds they studied had bright colors and 86% of them had those bright colors only on non-feather tissues. Okay. So only on skin or scales or beaks and such. They also found that bright coloration in birds correlates with their diet. That generally speaking, plant-eating birds are more brightly colored than meat-eaters or omnivores. And birds that have diets that are high in carotenoid content, such as certain plants or invertebrates, also tended to have more bright coloration across the various tissues of their bodies. So the diet of birds and other animals can impact whether or not they have bright coloration. Oh, it makes sense. Looking at the evolutionary relationships of all these groups, they were able to make a prediction 
And the prediction was that if you go all the way back to the earliest archosaurs, so the ancestors of crocs and birds, and maybe turtles, who knows, <laughs> there is, according to their analysis, a 50% chance that the ancestral archosaurs had bright coloration on their skin or beaks or scales. That there is a good chance this kind of coloration goes all the way back to the earliest archosaurs. Neat! But those ancestors had, according to their study, a 0% chance of those same bright colors in claws or feathers. Okay, okay. And the same 0% chance was predicted for the earliest bird lineage. That this bright coloration in feathers particularly is something that has popped up a number of times since the origin of birds, but not beforehand. All right. So yeah, the earliest birds would not have been peacocking. Right. Uh, And likely the things close to birds, or at the very least, if they were peacocking, they weren't doing it with orange and yellow and red. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Not the bright reds. Maybe we have some dinosaurs that are interpreted as duller reds or duller oranges and, and browns, but not like a parakeet. With its super bright uh, orange and red colors, that kind of coloration in the feathers wouldn't have been around earlier. But it's possible that like bright pink feet like yeah. pigeons have or bright beaks like toucans might have been possible in earlier groups. Yeah. So like, you know, I'm thinking of the red faces in hornbills and yeah, yeah. stuff like that, like where the skin is colored in a very vibrant way or the um the blue in a cassowary. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, where it's not the plumage, but the actual skin. So dinosaurs could still, you know, have bright colors in their skin, but the feathers, not so much. Right. And as you just brought up, this has implications for what ancient archosaurs may have looked like. Mm-hmm. So when we're reconstructing dinosaurs and such, and they do have a really cool diagram as part of the paper that shows possible areas on dinosaur bodies where they might have had bright colors. Oh, that's Those really sort interesting. Of reds, yellows, and oranges. So on feathered dinosaurs, they may have had those colors on the face or on the legs or things like ceratopsians on their beak or frill. So this doesn't say anything conclusive about what color patterns each individual dinosaur group may have actually had, but it does give us some insight into what was possible. Man, Crocs Crocs are very, very dull colored. <laughs> In their diagram, not a lot of fun colors on Crocs. Which, which, yeah, we see that. We see that today. <laughs> well, and also that goes back to their uh, findings about diet. Mm-hmm. That plant eaters are more likely to have these bright colors than meat eaters. Yeah. Which would match with most Crocs. But that also suggests that over the history of Croc and dinosaur and pterosaur evolution... These kinds of colors might have come and gone with dietary changes. Absolutely, yeah. That's very interesting. Well, and it also, this could give us information about behavior as well, that if herbivory makes it more likely, you might have had more brightly displaying herbivores. Whilst like crocs and gators display like crazy, but it's body language and noise. Right, right. They don't do it with flashy colors. Right. Uh, so you might have some, you could have similar dynamics going on between similarly dieted 
dinosaurs. Yeah, this is one more set of data to help us put together the picture of how dinosaurs and other ancient reptiles were using color. Yep. Which is very cool. Awesome. See, I, I, every little bit we learn more about what they look like, I'm happy. <laughs> My next news is also about comparing the animals of yesterday to today, but not archosaurs, orangutans. Okay. So, you know. Those are kind of brightly colored. Same but different. That's that's less so the carotenoid orange and more the melanin orange, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. This is a study about shrinking orangutans. I assume you mean, like, evolutionarily, not like pin particles? I mean, well, let's get through the study. All right, okay, all right, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to spoil it. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a study about a group of orangutans that we knew got smaller, but it seems they may have gotten smaller in a different pattern than initially we thought. Huh. This is research by Terry Harrison et al. in the Journal of Human Evolution, and the article is by Bruce Bauer in Science News. Today's orangutans only live in Sumatra and Borneo, on those islands. But in the past, they had a wider range. They were known in southern China and northern Vietnam, like they ranged that far. And uh, many of the fossil orangutans in those areas were giants, were big, much bigger than today's. And based on the few fossils that we've had throughout the past, we were able to tell that they shrunk over time. And it seemed the kind of uh, hypothesis that was taken from what information we did have had led to the idea that that this evolution happened pretty quickly and that it was an evolution from a larger species to a smaller species. Gotcha. That coincided with a climate cooling roughly 400,000 years ago. Uh, the two species involved is Pongo white and right which would have been the larger, and then Pongo debosai, which would have been the smaller. Uh, still larger than today's, but smaller than White and Reiki. This study, though, looked at over 800 teeth, isolated Pongo teeth. Pongo is still the genus of today's orangutans, right, by right. the way. Uh, fossil from... Pongo teeth? Yep, fossil. I, did, I wouldn't have guessed we had over 800 fossil orangutan teeth. Many of these have been more recently unearthed from 10 different caves in southern China. Oh, cool. And these range from early to late Pleistocene, so... 2 million years to about 111,000. <laughs> and they looked at them to see what is the pattern of shrinkage and what is the degree of shrinkage as well, which is interesting. So they examined the tooth size, length, and the size of the chewing surface and compared it to 106 modern Pongo, Pongo pygmaeus, teeth. And they found that, yes, indeed, the teeth do shrink in size over time. Okay. But it doesn't seem to be punctuated like we had initially thought. Right. It's not large, 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 and then small, small, small. Yeah. It's a much more gradual, steady shrinking. Hmm. And it's notable. They said that the teeth from the early Pleistocene were about 38% larger than today's orangutans, and middle to late Pleistocene were about 25% for the middle and 18% larger than today's. Huh. This allowed them to get some body size estimates, which is always fun. Looks like these orangutans started out around 96 kilograms, uh, which is close to double the size, the weight of today's orangutans, which is a little over 200 pounds. Uh, by the end of this range of teeth, you know, uh, 111,000 years ago, they were around 80 kilograms, uh, which is still larger than today's, but had shrunk by a significant amount. So in addition to the size shrinkage being steady instead of a punctuated species change, they also notice that morphologically the shape doesn't really seem to change. 
Uh, it seems to be fairly consistent throughout the whole shrinking process, which suggests a single species. Yeah. Or uh, at least a single lineage that isn't quite changing as much as they expected. Yeah. They said that we, they, we could still keep the two species that had previously been applied to these populations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the researchers are kind of suggesting that they should all be put with Wyden Raikai. Gotcha. Uh, the original big species just got smaller. It didn't actually change into a different species. Uh, so it just shrunk over time. This is actually seen in other fossil mammals from that area uh, and that time frame. Uh, rhinos and monkeys also show a reduction in size. And they think it's very likely due to a cooling and drying of the climate during uh, this period. Once again, around 400,000 years ago, same climate cooling they were blaming earlier on the species change Mm -hmm. just now just due to shrinking likely affected food spurred them towards smaller sizes it's interesting because this sounds to me like the difference between because it's still a change yes and you could even even if uh, someone comes along and says well we are still going to call them different species that's a gradual change from one form to another rather than a quick change Mm mm-hmm which in terms of the uh, hypothesis of a cause might be the difference between a rapid environmental change and a gradual environmental change. Yep. That this wasn't necessarily things changed really quickly and everything had to adapt uh, or die, but that it was things gradually shifted in the environment and everything sort of gradually adjusted to the new the new normal. Yeah. Well, it makes me think about how overall average human height and size has change throughout history Mm -hmm. and that you know we're still humans we still consider ourselves the same species during all of that time but that there has been notable you know measurable changes in our overall uh uh, body mass well and what's really interesting that the teeth shape didn't change would also i think lend itself to this idea that it wasn't some dramatic environmental shift yeah that things were basically the same except for a group of factors that really only affected size. Yeah, it's a, Not that your food changed, maybe your amount of food changed. Yes, exactly. But you were still eating the same thing and still living the same way. What you're doing hasn't shifted, just the size you want to be to uh, do it effectively or to <laughs> not starve yourself. Very interesting. Well, let's do one more news for 2021. The last news. The last news there is for the year. This is about... Ammonites. Ooh, okay. Specifically, one ammonite with an unprecedented amount of preserved soft tissue. <gasps> this is research by Leslie Churns et al. in the journal Geology, and we will link in the blog post to a press release by Tamana Begum in, na- in the, the website of the Natural History Museum in London. Ammonites are spiral-shelled cephalopods, some of the most famous fossils Ever. I was going to say fossil invertebrates, but let's be honest, some of the most famous fossil animals, period. They would have had spiral shells with sort of a squid face sticking out of the opening uh, with a bunch of arms flailing about. Very similar in shape to modern day nautiluses, but a different group, uh, a different ancient group of cephalopods. As you might expect from the fossil record, we have a lot of information about the shells of cephalopods, but not a lot of information about the soft parts. Like those guler valves in your crocs, soft tissue does not preserve very well. Except, of course, when it does. (laughs) This study 
looks at a single ammonite specimen of, a, of the species Sigillosaurus enodatum from the Middle Jurassic of Southwest England. This specimen was discovered in a gravel pit in 1998, so over 20 years ago. It is exceptionally well-preserved, and inside the shell, there are remains of soft tissue. This has been known for a long time, but there hasn't been a lot of study on the inside of the specimen, uh, partially because it's hard, no one wants to break it. The article uh, actually says no one wants to crack it open (laughs) because it's such a nicely preserved specimen. There have been CT scans of this specimen in the past, but because of the way it's preserved, normal CT scanning has a difficult time differentiating the soft and the hard tissues. Gotcha. So this study combined CT scanning with another technique called neutron scanning, uh, which sounds sci-fi and awesome, and this technique can better tell the difference between those tissues. The way the authors describe it in the abstract of the paper, this specimen has provided unrivaled info on soft body organization in ammonites. Wow. They were able to get 3D images for the first time in ammonites of a variety of muscles and organs inside the shell. These included tissues and muscles of the upper and lower jaws, of the siphuncle, which is the tube that runs throughout the shell and helps control fluid pressure, which aids buoyancy, allows the shell to rise or sink in the water. The structure of of what's called the hyponome, which is a funnel-shaped muscle that expels water, which is a part of, in modern cephalopods, jet propulsion. Yeah. And the paired dorsal retractor muscles which are muscles along the outside of the inside, the outer wall of the shell that pull the body into the shell (laughs) uh, for when it needs to hide away. Uh, They also found with their scanning small shells that have been preserved inside the ammonite shell. So in the outer chamber where the head would stick out, it's filled with sediment and other small shell organisms have been fossilized inside that little area that I guess got washed in at some point. Neat. They were able not only to study these things, but also, and I'm about to show Will a picture, to upload a 3D scan. So in the article, there is a link to a 3D image of the ammonite shell with a bunch of these tissues labeled. That's beautiful. It's so cool. It's, yeah, it's just, it's, it's mesmerizing. Uh, that's amazing. This also allowed them to do a little bit of soft tissue comparison with modern cephalopods. Yeah. Now, mainly, the big takeaway is that they compared those dorsal muscles with nautiluses today. So nautiluses and ammonites, again, both spiral-shelled, both have many chambers inside the shell. The soft tissue of the animal itself is inside the various chambers, and the head sticks out of the outer chamber out into the ocean water. In nautiluses, those dorsal muscles and that hyponome, the funnel, work together to create jet propulsion, which helps the nautilus move around in the water. But in this ammonite, those two different muscle groups are separate from each other. They are not working together, which suggests that at least this type of ammonite, and very likely ammonites in general, had a different swimming style than modern nautiluses do. Interesting. And in fact, that it might have been more similar to the way squids and octopuses move around than it is to the way nautiluses move around. Interesting. 
So if we're trying to picture how an ammonite swims, it might not be accurate to just look at a nautilus and go, yeah, like that. Mm-hmm. Even though they have the same basic body organization. That's fascinating. So now I'm trying to picture the differences in movements because nautiloids, they float. They don't crawl like an octopus and they don't have fins uh, like a squid or cuttlefish. So they just bob around and they have their siphon, which is the part that does the jet propulsing, uh, that they can angle out to go backwards or forward. Uh, and they're incredibly clumsy. Yes. Uh, like bumping into stuff. <laughs> they're not good at maneuvering, but they're down deep. So they just kind of bump their way around and then find sediment that they try to find food with. There are many, many, many tentacles. Whilst like when an octopus jet propulses, it's much more like flying through the water. Yeah. And instead of like puttering around. So were ammonites just more graceful nautiluses? Mm-hmm. Were they swimming? That I don't know enough about how cephalopods move around to picture what I guess an intermediate would be. Yeah. And to my knowledge, squids typically use it as a get out of there. Mm-hmm. And usually they're flying around with the fin. And the ammonites may also have done that. Yeah. You could easily pull your head in and jet away, uh, engage all your defenses. Which makes me wonder if they had any other mode of slower movement with the arms or something. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. There's also a note in the article where they point out that this is a specimen. This is a really cool example of a specimen that was discovered, recognized to be really important, and then we waited. Did some study, but waited, and now the technology is good enough that we can get this extra information out of this specimen. That it's it's convenient and nice that we didn't break it into pieces to try to study all these things. We were able to wait for technology to to get us to a point where we could get these this information. Well, it's the paleo equivalent of the the sci fi concept of I I have this uh, chronic illness. Right. I will freeze myself <laughs> well, until it's like, medicine catches up to my disease. It's like uh, Tony Stark's dad. Yep. It's like I made this discovery, but the technology doesn't exist. So you will have to do just the uh, just one of the most ridiculous science scenes in the whole Marvel universe. <laughs> well, and it is a practice, at least these days, in paleontology and archaeology, sometimes to leave a fossil or leave a fossil site partially intact or entirely intact or intentionally hold off on doing certain things so that if in 10 years, 20 years, we have better methods and better techniques, we can make use, we make the best use out of them. Yeah, rushing is not always the best option. Well, not to rush into it, but what do you say we wrap up the news and move on to our main discussion? I think that sounds pretty good. After the break, we will engage and it, it just a, the fascinating modern and ancient history of rhinos. Every now and then we do an episode about a group of animals that it feels a little weird to introduce and describe. Yes. <laughs> We, we did elephants. It was like this. Rhinos are such a unique and charismatic group of animals that it, 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 it's odd to think of describing a rhino to somebody. Yeah. I'm sure there are people who are not very familiar with rhinos, but it feels like they're everywhere. They're iconic. They're in artwork. Yeah, like, that's right. Through history. The, it, they're one of those things that falls into like, these are just will be slapped onto 
kid stuff as just like a little cartoon rhino. Yeah. Like they're just one of those often used interesting animals. Yeah, they are. There is a term that some of our uh, audience may be familiar with. Charismatic megafauna. Yeah. Rhinos are about as charismatic as megafauna get. Will, uh, I'm going to go into some more details here in a little bit. But describe a rhino. Ooh. So the, the first thought that always comes to me to compare it to something, which isn't always the most useful description, uh, to compare it to a different animal that I'm, I'm sure, not going to describe. <laughs> <laughs> no, rhinos, they're kind of like tapers. Yeah. Moving on. <laughs> uh, I, the first thought that always comes to me is it's it's a land hippo with a horn. Right. <laughs> or a really heavy horse. Yes. Yep. With a horn. Yeah. Rhinos... Uh, these heavy built large animals that just massive, but all, I always think of them as stocky. They've got these four stocky legs and then just a massive long skull. Yep. Tipped at the snout with one or two, depending, long upward curving horns. And yeah, they've got that, that little kind of uh, almost horse-like front lips sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, depending, I guess, depending on which one you look at. That's true. Uh, and then those little flappy ears. And then the <laughs> tiny little, like, elephant bristly tail in yeah, the, the back. Yeah, the little fly swatter in yep. the back. <laughs> <laughs> and they've got that characteristic, like, leathery, yeah, layerish that... looking skin. Yeah, they have famously thick skin. Yeah, it looks pleated because of the way the folds and are. And some species especially. Yes. Rhinos are large-bodied, in fact, among the largest-bodied living animals. Mm-hmm. Herbivores, strictly, as you mentioned, big bodies, big heads, just giant noggins. It's It almost looks like they should be off balance. Column-like legs, like we see in most large animals, right? Like hippos, like elephants. That thick skin that is sometimes described almost like armor. And then, of course, yeah, horns. That rhinoceros <laughs> nose horn. There you go. Right there in the name. I'll go into the modern diversity of rhinos in a bit, which isn't very much. But first, some classification. Rhinos are ungulates. They are among the hoofed mammals. The, the, this, this is the group that includes deer and bison and rhinos and horses and all those. There are two groups within the ungulates. Artiodactyls, the even-toed ungulates, which are deer, cows, bison, goats, sheep, giraffes, hippos, pigs, peccaries, whales <laughs> also. Those are the, typically the ones you think of with the split hoof. Yep. And odd-toed ungulates, which is, in the modern day, horses, tapers, and rhinos. Yeah. The perissodactyls. And just as a, as a note, odd-toed and even-toed don't actually mean that they have an odd or even number of toes, strictly speaking. Nope. It describes the line of symmetry through the foot. Perissodactyl toes are mesaxonic, as opposed to being paraxonic in Artiodactyls. And artiodactyls, if you drew a line of symmetry just down the center of the leg, that line would go across the foot and then between the third and fourth toes. In perissodactyls, it goes down the middle of a central toe, the third toe. Runs along what would be our middle finger. Yes. Now, uh, conveniently, most perissodactyls are actually (laughs) odd-toed. Horses, especially today, have one toe on their each foot. Rhinos have three toes on each foot. Tapers are the weird ones yeah. where their front feet have four toes. But even then, that fourth toe is kind of off to the side. Yes. It's like a little thumb sticking off. Perissodactyls are generally classified in two major groups. 
On one side, the Hippomorpha, which despite what the name might make you think of, hippo means horse. Horses. Equids, which includes today's asses, zebras, and horses, including our domesticated horses. And the other side are the Ceratomorpha, tapirs, and rhinos. Yee. All modern groups of perissodactyls are not particularly speciose. In terms of modern diversity, there are five living species of rhinos, all of which belong to the family Rhinoceratidae. And because there's only five, we can go into a little bit of detail on each. Convenient, kind of, sadly. Well, we didn't. That, that, it's not our fault yet. <laughs> there are African rhinos and Asian rhinos. The African rhinos, there are two living species, the white rhino, Ceratotherium simum, and the black rhino, Dicerus bicornis. Both of those might mean two-horn, now that I'm looking at it. <laughs> That's hilarious. Both of them are found in grasslands, shrublands, and sometimes deserts in Africa. Both of them have two horns. These are tandem horns, which like a tandem bicycle, yep. one in front of the other. Like the big front one and that little small back one. Yes. The front one in both uh, is often a meter long, so three feet long. Uh, and I have seen reports of white rhinos with horns at two meters long. So, me-sized. Uh, just just a person sticking off the front <laughs> of your face. A, a pointy person. <laughs> a Both... power-coned person. <laughs> hey, callback. Both uh, rhino species can be uh, one and a half meters to sometimes almost two meters tall. Uh, generally, we're measuring at the shoulder. So that is an animal that either one of us could look in the shoulder. Yep, might have trouble looking over. Gelp. Black rhinos are commonly uh, one ton or more in weight. White rhinos are commonly over two tons, and the size ranges I've seen go almost up to three tons. They are commonly cited as the second largest living land mammal. Which I know academically, but I forget all the time that rhinos are the ones that follow up elephants. Yeah. They're huge. That's so big. The other big difference between the two African rhinos is that white rhinos are grazers, mostly eating grass. They've got that wide upper lip, that lawnmower lip. Yeah, it's flat for fitting against the ground and just, yeah, just mowing. Black rhinos are browsers. They eat leafy stuff. And they famously have a pointed, hooked, prehensile upper lip. Yeah. It's it's like, and like we have that, like a little bump right in the middle of your upper lip. But if you... If you sh- Grab that and just stretched it out yeah. rhinos, and then gave it a lot of muscles. <laughs> yeah, they'll like wrap it around a twig and pull the leaves off of it. It's not quite a trunk like a taper. No. But it is a very flexible upper lip. Well, it it makes me think of when you see videos of petting zoos and like the donkeys or something are like reaching their lips out toward you trying to grab the food. Yes. I've seen videos of black rhinos doing that where like... At a zoo when a handler's coming to feed them, and the lip will just be going crazy as it's yep. hoping to grab some food. Searching for it. And then there are three species of Asian rhinos. The Indian rhino, also called the greater one-horned rhino, Rhinoceros unicornis, the, the genus Rhinoceros. Nice. And the Javan rhino, Rhinoceros sandaicus. And then the odd one out, the Sumatran rhino, Dicerorhinus sumatrensis. Indian rhinos are similar in size to white rhinos, mainly eat grass. They live in the forests and grasslands these days in India and Nepal. As the name suggests, they have one horn, uh, usually not as big as far as I've read as the other ones, maybe half a meter, which is still an impressive horn. And this is the species that famously has those big skin folds 
that makes it look like they're wearing armor plating. Yeah, it looks like layered leather armor. Yeah. And it's just, it looks fake. Yeah. It, it looks, well, it looks like a costume. Yeah. It looks like, uh, well, like when an artist wants to make an animal look tough, and so <laughs> they give them armor-looking scales and osteoderms. That's what it looks like happened yeah. here. <laughs> Javan rhinos look a lot like Indian rhinos, but they're more close in size to black rhinos, so not quite as big. They live in the forests of Java in Indonesia. And then Sumatran rhinos, the smallest living rhinos, a mere one to one and a half meters tall, and usually only half a ton to a ton. Adorable. Uh, so rhinos are one of those interesting groups. They, they are exclusively very large. Yes. Sumatran rhinos have two horns, tandem horns again, one in front, one in the back, usually relatively small, especially the second one. Sumatran rhinos are also famously hairy. Oh, right. They're fuzzy rhinos. I forget about that. And they've got tufted ears and reddish brown skin. These are browsers that live in the forests of Sumatra in Indonesia. All across rhinos, they are all herbivores. They all live mostly solitary lives. They're not really gregarious. They don't really live in groups. The horns themselves are used for display and for combat. Yep. Uh, they Rhinos will fight against each other. That thickened skin helps protect a rhino from another rhino. And uh, as you can find videos online, rhinos are also often perfectly happy to use those horns against whatever is annoying them just, at that particular time. Just to mess up whatever's in front of them at the moment. I've seen some really uncomfortable videos I, of what that horn can do. The one that I always think of. Is it and the wildebeest one? It, it's the wildebeest one. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've seen that one too. And the one that that gets me is less what the horn does to the wildebeest, but just watching the rhino go up to this cow-sized animal, mm -hmm. you know, and just picking it up off the ground purely with its neck muscles. Yep, just with that head. As it just lifts it with its head like a forklift. And, and like, yes, the horn is also being very, very utilized, mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's bad for the wildebeest, but just ignoring its weight. Yeah, they are very impressive animals. Just They're so strong. Supremely powerful. <laughs> very, very high on my list of the animals I would least like to see running in my direction. <laughs> as far as relationships among modern rhinos, it is generally agreed, as far as I can tell, that the black and white rhinos are closely related, and the Indian and Javan rhinos, of course, same genus, are closely related. The Sumatran gets kind of shuffled around in different studies. All it's right. got kind of that Temistema, the false garial yeah. deal going on. Some uh, studies group it with the African species, in part because it has two horns like they do. Makes sense. Others group it with the Asian species because it lives in Asia yep. uh, geographically. And then there are some studies that find it as its own branch. Yeah. That, that is, it is a third group of modern rhinos. It's interesting. Uh, one thing I learned while you were saying all this, I don't know that I knew the two Africans were different genus. Yeah. I didn't know that. They are separate genera. And they look rather different once you start... And and it's it's funny because I was looking through rhinos and looking at pictures and I realized and I hadn't noticed I hadn't really known this that the image of a rhino in my head is a specific species. Oh, yeah. White rhino mm -hmm. is the well, that's the Jumanji rhino, if yep. I'm remembering correctly, like that is the rhino in my head. And then the Indian rhino is the artistic <laughs> yes. elaborated one that's also in my head. It's funny because now that you mention it. I, def I think I have that as well. Uh, I think I might also see a white, if I'm remembering it right, but I definitely think of a black rhino face. Yeah. When I think of a rhino face, I give it the little lip. That uh, makes sense. And I don't know if it's just that I find it cuter, <laughs> but... 
I give it the lip. <laughs> now, before we go further, we should zoom in just for a moment on the iconic part of the rhino, their horns, because rhino horns are weird. Yeah. There are lots of animals in the world today that have horns or horn-like structures. Rhino horns are very distinct. They are made of keratin. So keratin is the structure that's the the protein that makes up our fingernails and our hair. It's what makes up scales uh, on reptiles oftentimes. The rhino keratin horn is strengthened by other substances like melanin and calcium. It grows from the bottom, kind of like our hair, which is most of our hair is dead cells. The horn is like that. It's growing from a root-like. Yep. I have often seen, I'll see things that have described it as compressed hair. That the oh. horn is made of compressed hair, which I don't think is the case. Because <laughs> I was reading some descriptions and I saw that it's not really made of compressed hair. It's just made of the same substance. It, it's That it's a, con- a compressed structure made out of the same material our hair is made out yes. of. Rhino horns are different from most animal horns. So if you think of a bison or an, I mean, an even more apt comparison, a triceratops, <laughs> which have horns, those horns are on the skull. The, the horn is made of bone. And then in life, it is covered by a keratin sheath. So if you look at a triceratops skull or a bison skull, there is a horn-shaped piece of bone sticking off the skull. Yeah, the horn core. The horn core, absolutely. And then a keratin sheath grows over it and adds, oftentimes will add extra length and extra pointiness at the end. It's kind of like a keratin pin cap over yeah. the bone. So it's... Bone underneath, extra pointy sheath on the outside, just like Wolverine's claws. <laughs> They're bone underneath, and then you put an adamantium pointy sheath on the outside of them. <laughs> That's how most horns are. Rhinos are not. There's no bone in there. If you look at a rhino skull, there is no horn on the skull. There is, on the nasal bones, uh, what is called rugosity. Just these little knobs and bumps and this rough patch of bone, which is where the keratin horn attaches to the bone. So you can see evidence of the horn in modern rhinos, but there's no horn there. Yeah, it's there's... keratin, so it doesn't tend to preserve uh, along with the skeleton. There's a platform for it. Yes. And as we said, they use this for defense, for competition, for signaling. Their skin, it's not just that their skin is thick. There is a structure in the skin that makes it dense. It is an organized, dense structure that reinforces the skin Uh, particularly in places like the face, the neck, certain parts of the body. They're not alone. I've seen this related to similar structures in hippos and pinnipeds. So they're not the only ones, but they they are both armed and armored (laughs) animals. Uh, When it's cool, because a lot of times when we think about, you know, skin defense, we think of shells and scales and, you know, uh, armadillo osteoderm type thing where it's right. hardened like actual tink 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 hardened pieces on the outside i like that this is like leather armor yeah it's like it's just better skin when we make leather armor we cure it to make it tough i like that that's what they've done with their skin basically they're just wearing leather armor all oh, the time it's so cool now we're going to talk about evolution in the fossil record here in a second but before we do because we're talking about rhinos I feel like we should take a little detour and talk about the current state of rhinos. And now things get sad. Uh, They're going to get sad. Rhinos are not just iconic for being unusual and unique and charismatic megafauna. They're also one of the iconic 
endangered species animals. All five rhino species today are under severe threat from human activity, predominantly habitat loss, right? forest destruction, grassland destruction, and poaching. Yeah. Very famously, rhinos are hunted as trophies because they're big and exciting. They're hunted for their horns, which are used in all sorts of medicine or, or just as cool trinkets. Mm-hmm. Certain rhinos, I think Indian rhinos, are, are hunted for their tusks. Right, right. So Indian rhinos have two lower, two of the lower incisors are actually big tusks. Not quite hippo-sized, but kind of like a hippo. And they'll be hunted for those. Poaching, rhinos are one of, like, rhinos and elephants are, like, the two iconic over-poached animals today. Because you're you're big and you're impressive, which draws our attention to you immediately. There's that whole human thing of wanting to to best things. Right, you know, conquer the beasts. Yep, climb Mount Everest, take on the biggest whatever it is. Right. And then you've got these big display structures, these tusks and elephants and giant horns yep. that are just begging for more attention. Yeah. You know? And, and that you can't get anywhere else. Exactly. Yeah, that are truly unique among most of the world to this small set of animals. Yeah. And so they get, they're popular and they're rare. And then if you add in reputations for their their uses. All rhino species today used to have much wider ranges. They used to live in more countries. They used to live in more uh, widely ranging habitats. Most of them have multiple subspecies. And many of those subspecies are extinct or extinct in the wild. Yeah. White and Indian rhinos, those two species are often cited as success stories because they were once very, very common. And then they were brought down to just precipitously low numbers, brink of extinction. But conservation efforts have restored populations. So they are doing better even with that, the white rhino is classified by the IUCN, so the International Union of Conservation of Nature, or something to that effect, Yeah, as near-threatened, and there are estimated to be under 20,000 of them in the wild, which is not a big number. Nope. And the Indian rhino is classified as vulnerable, with a few thousand estimated in the wild. Those are the good ones. Woo. The other three rhino species are critically endangered. Black rhinos, I saw uh, the IUCN listed that they were previously the most numerous rhino species. In the latter half of the 1900s, they experienced a 98% population decline. Again, habitat loss and poaching. And now there are estimated to be only a few thousand left in the wild and very unstable, very, very in threat of more activity. Sumatran rhinos, also in the past few decades have lost a reported 80% of population size. They are called, uh, on the IUCN, perhaps the most threatened large mammal on Earth. They now live in Sumatra. They are found in a single country. They used to be more countries. They are now found in a single country, and a 2019 analysis estimated that there are fewer than 100 Sumatran rhinos left. And then there's the Javan rhino which is currently found in Ujung Kulong National Park in Java. They are found in one national park, and that uh, another 2019 analysis estimated that there are fewer than 70 of them. These are extremely endangered animals, and there are very few of them. Their range has been extremely restricted, and their populations have been... And the white and Indian rhinos 
were at one point very similar yes. to these two. Which, on the one hand, is kind of encouraging because it means we can help them restore populations. But on the other hand means that we humans, our impact has brought all five rhino species to near extinction. And we have successfully, I guess, driven extinct many subspecies and driven them extinct in many different countries. Yeah. We have wiped out their range in a lot of areas. Rhinos are among the, p- perhaps the most mistreated group of animals on our planet today. Yeah, and it's, you know, a- as usual, it's always tragic because we're doing this. Like, yeah. this was not a natural decline. With this, It is a very obvious, over these series of decades, Right, like, enough time for a few people to finish their schooling... Right. Rhinos went from pretty populous in a bunch of places to almost not there anymore. Mm-hmm. And so it's just like, it's tragic, but also it's rough when we like destroy a population of turtles. But this animal is so unique um, out, uh, among right. the animals around today. So it's, if we lose them, there's nothing like a rhino. Well, and the other thing that uh, gets me about that and that is very frustrating is that when we accidentally destroy a habitat and then animals in that area suffer for it it is indirect enough that it can be easy to understand like okay yeah all right i get you can make that mistake sure sure you needed farmland for your family right and it's there's it was a couple of steps down the line to this endangerment exactly you weren't this was not aimed at the rhinos rhinos are actively hunted today yes by poachers illegally who must know that rhinos are almost gone. Oh, yeah, because there's their job's a, getting harder. There's a market for it. And that just sort of the commercial incentivization of driving a species extinct is a real, that's a, that's a, mm, this is the kind of thing that used to make me back when my, you know, when I was a teenager and I was very confident about all of my opinions. It was this kind of stuff that put me on the bandwagon of like, yep, let's just get rid of all the humans from the earth. Yep. Let's just all shoot us all into space because we're the worst thing ever. It, yeah. Well, and and this is the commercialization, as you said. It They're being poached, but they're also being purchased. Yes. Those materials are being bought illegally mm-hmm. by people in enough of a bulk quantity. Yeah. And not just in the parts of the world that we over here in the U.S. like to think of as underdeveloped and primitive and, oh, they don't know any better because, you know, certain places in the world get portrayed as just uncivilized. Yeah, exactly. But it's not. It's like people in this country are supporting that kind of... This is a global behavior. Yeah, around the world, people are, are funding the extinction of the rhinos. Now... Uh, we could rant about rhino conservation and extinct endangered species uh, for the rest of the episode, but we won't because we got to move on to the fossil record. And interestingly enough, the contrast between today and the the deep history of rhinos is both fascinating and a little extra sad. Yep. <laughs> that rhinos today, so even before we got to them, right? Rhinos, there are only five living species of rhinos. They're not particularly speciose. And even if you go back to the end of the Ice Age, there were only a few more than that. But rhinos have an excellent fossil record. They are found in several different continents, 
They were extremely diverse. This is actually true of all perissodactyls, horses, tapirs, and rhinos. All of, like, in total, there's less than 20 living species. And all of them have great, diverse evolutionary histories and fantastic fossil records. That's a really good point. I never really thought about it over that whole group, but it is true. Yeah. Partially, this has to do with the fact that these are all big-bodied animals. Like, even the smallest rhino uh, today, certainly, and a lot of them in the past were pretty big. They have robust bones, and they used to be very diverse and widespread. So going all the way back to the beginning, perissodactyls originate in the Paleocene. So over 60 million years ago is probably where the earliest members of the odd-toed ungulates show up. The rhino lineage is thought to have split from its closest cousins, the taper lineage, by the early Eocene, around 55 to 50 million years old. At that time, when these groups were all splitting, the earliest perissodactyls all look very similar. <laughs> They're all kind of pig or pony size. They look kind of like tapers or kind of like short squat horses. The rhino lineage as a whole is called Rhinoceratoidea, the mm. grander group. Uh, the rhinoceratoids, or as I uh, ended up shortening it in my notes, the rhinoids. <laughs> 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 the earliest rhinoceratoids... Uh, are a bit disputed, as is often the case with the beginning of any group. There is an animal called Hyrachias from the early Eocene of North America, which is often cited as either the one of the earliest known rhinos or close to the earliest known rhinos. There was a paper in 2016 that identified a species of another early rhino-slash-rhino relative, Papaceris, whose name, as far as I can tell, does actually mean pop like grandfather horn <laughs> papa <Ceres. laughs> i i want a picture it's of a bunch of great modern rhinos <laughs> and more <laughs> recent rhinos sitting around, around on the on the rug around papa Ceres in a uh, rocking chair papa Ceres or papaceros uh, no, early papa Ceres. very silly early eocene of china both of these again looked very much like what most of the early perissodactyls looked like I'm gonna. I'm showing Will a picture of a Hyrachias skeleton. They're small animals, and they look a lot like a pig or a taper. Yep. Sort of a generalized short ungulate. If you think of the a goat-like body or a sheep-like body, basically like that. Yep. They got kind of a a. It looks like a mixture between a generalized taper face or a tiny rhino skull. <laughs> yes. By the Middle Eocene, so around 50 to 45 million years ago, there are several early rhinos in both Asia and North America. They all have that same general appearance, varying sizes, small to medium-ish. There is no evidence for horns in any of them. And from these early members, there arose four major groups of the extended rhino family. These are not the only rhinos, but they are four major groups that I'm going to talk about because they are interesting examples of the diversity of rhinos. These four are relatively well studied, relatively distinct, and they all, uh, I have read them given uh, fun nicknames. The first group are called the Hyracodontidae, nicknamed the running rhinos. <laughs> oh yeah, we're starting off good. The classic example of this group uh, is Hyracodon. From Middle Eocene, North America. So again, we're talking that those early, early days, around 40 to 50 million years ago. Hyracodon is, a, again, sheep-sized, pig-sized. One description I saw called it Great Dane-sized. 
Nice. Which is a nice comparison. This was a browser with a somewhat longish neck and longish slender legs. Not quite like a horse, but it looks like something trying to be a horse. But it looks it looks like a a more robust horse. Yeah. Like like this this like a linebacker horse. Yes. <laughs> this is this is the tough horse. Yeah. Uh, again, I'm showing Will. I'm going to have me showing Will pictures of these skeletons as we go. And we'll put pictures in the blog post as usual. This general body size is interpreted as adaptations for running. Again, not horse or gazelle running. Perhaps I saw some descriptions relating them to maybe like pigs or peccaries. Like you are uh, sometimes called subcursorial. <laughs> you're not quite a runner runner. Like You're not going to win the races every time. But you can move. Yeah, you're you're a, a, a jogger. Hyracodon has three toes on each foot, similar to the horses at the time. And in fact, Hyracodons look a lot like the horses of the time. Those early horses, like we discussed in episode 76. There are other Hyracodonts found in North America and Asia. Most of them are small to medium-sized. Most of them have this same sort of body structure. Some of them even have a particularly large central toe. Kind of like early horses did. It's so interesting for all the the horsiness to them. Uh, still a very rhino face. Yeah, well, and that that kind of makes one wonder because rhinos and tapers have very similar skulls. Yes, they do. Uh, and horses, you can see the resemblance, but it's a little bit. A horse skull looks like a horse skull. Yeah, but it looks more horsey. And in many ways, the earliest perissodactyls. Uh, most often I see them compared to tapers. Mm-hmm. Perissodactyls started out kind of taper-like, and modern tapers have remained kind of taper-like, and rhinos and horses <laughs> went in slightly different directions. Yep. It's so all... they do convert. And I, 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 one description I read of them pointed out that in the earliest days, there are early rhinos, tapers, and horses, but they're really hard to tell apart. Yeah, as usual. Yeah, that's what you'd expect. Because you haven't diverged much. But in this case, we have a good enough fossil record to actually be able to see that transition over time of them differentiating. Yeah. It's always interesting to me when there's an early member of a group that is very distinct. Like, this is not at all like today's rhinos. Oh, yeah. In its overall shape. But its face, if you are used to looking at the bony face of a rhino. Yeah, that's a rhino face. It looks like a rhino face, which is always intriguing to me because it's like... It I does not look like you likely had a horn. Nope. Uh, but you still have a lot of rhino features to you. So that what was why why those features <laughs> if not to be <laughs> the rhinos we know. So as you pointed out, there is no evidence of horns. We don't see that rugosity or anything on the the nose. It's got a cute little button nose. It does. Exactly how long the harakodonts, the running rhinos, last geologically. Kind of depends on how the group is defined in relationship to other groups. Hyracodon itself, that genus, goes until about the late Oligocene, so around 25 million years ago, so from the Eocene through the Oligocene. Sometimes Hyracodons are considered a, a very basal group, a, an early branching group. Other times they're considered a bit of a wastebasket group, that is just everything that doesn't fit into the other major groups goes in here. Especially since a lot of the early members of all the other groups look a lot like Hyracodonts. Exactly where the lines are is is fuzzy. And sometimes Hyracodontidae, the family, is considered to include another one of the major groups that we're going to talk about. 
But we're not going to talk about that group yet. Uh, I can't wait. We're going to talk about a different group first. The second group, the Aminodontidae. These I have often seen called the aquatic rhinos. (laughs) Or the, I only saw this used once, but it's way better. Swamp rhinos. (laughs) (laughs) These are the swamp rhinos. (laughs) The earliest aminodonts are from, again, the middle to late Eocene, similar to the hyracodonts, similar to those early perissodactyls. In the late Eocene, this group diversifies into two main branches. On the one hand, the cadurcodontines, which are taper-like, likely dwelt living in forests. The eponymous genus cadurcodon lived in Asia, shaped like a taper, general uh, habits probably like a taper, Incidentally, we've mentioned tapers a thousand times now. If you don't know what a taper is, tapers are relatives of rhinos and horses, of course. They are kind of pig-shaped, I like to describe them. My friend Will likes to describe them as a short, squat horse that got its nose stuck in a door. Yeah, they've got kind of the potbelly pig, you know, rotundus-nish to its body, but then it's got what would look like a pig snout if it were up flat to the face, but it is stretched and drooping in front of the mouth. There are four species living today. Cadurcodon not only had a body shape like a taper, but the nose bones on its face are so similar to modern tapers that it's thought that these rhinos had a proboscis. Had a short trunk like tapers do. Nice. The other main group within the aminodonts are the metaminodonts. These are shaped like hippos. (gasps) Metaminodon, the famous one, is from North America. There are other species. The later ones had large bodies, estimated up to two tons or more. So the size of the big modern rhinos and hippos. These rhinos had very short legs, big bodies, large tusk-like canines. So the lower canines, when they closed their mouth, sheared against the upper canines. They were self-sharpening, also like hippos. And because they have such hippo-shaped bodies, they are often interpreted as having been semi-aquatic. That they are thought that to perhaps have lived like hippos, dwelling near rivers or coastlines and grazing in plains. That is fascinating. The first thought that comes to my mind is either what is it about being a large, semi-aquatic you know, or or most of the time aquatic mammal uh, that drives you to evolve uh, tusk (laughs) teeth, you know, sharp, scary tusk teeth. Or are we just so used to equating big, scary, in-the-mouth tusk teeth? Is it just that the iconic big semi-aquatic animal we have today also happens to have the scariest mouth on the planet. Yes. And so when we see a mouth similar to it with something that's also big, we go, ooh, a hippo-shaped thing. Right. Not to assume these researchers just did that. Right, right. Uh, but either we're conflating or there's something about that Maybe. body design and aquatic habitat that seems to be real convenient to have your horn in your mouth. Now, uh, there are rhino, like we said, even today, Indian rhinos have tusks. Mm-hmm. So it's not just potentially aquatic rhinos that have those big tusks. But yeah, that is another interesting similarity between these swamp rhinos and modern hippos. I'm getting a real uh, Avatar The Last Airbender vibe of when they we meet <laughs> the swamp a, benders. 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's <laughs> That's my headcanon about these rhinos. <laughs> the Hyraxodon's going to come and meet them. Where can? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once again, important note, there is no evidence of horns. Nice. In these uh, amenodons. And again, with the big ones, why do you need them? you got those big tusks. Oh, yeah, you know, just bite something <laughs> and they will, they will not care that you don't have a horn. This whole group uh, was most diverse in the late Eocene to early Oligocene, so 40 to 30 million years ago or so. Mostly in Asia, but they're also found in North America and Europe. They decline throughout the Oligocene and generally, for the most part, they're extinct by the end of it. So around 20 million years ago is where this group sort of fades out as we move into the Miocene. Remember these, because the idea of a hippo-shaped rhino is going to come up again. Yes, it is. This is is not the only group that did it. (laughs) There are two other big groups of rhinos to talk about, uh, and I mean that both in the figurative sense and in the literal sense. (laughs) And we're going to talk about those after a short break. I've been talking for a while. And this way, you know, uh, foreshadowing. Yeah. Keep the people interested. Make them wait a little bit. With a word from this music. So (laughs) uh, play the music and we'll be right back. On to our next group of rhinos through time. And... If there are any uh, fans of rhino evolutionary history listening right now, this is the one you've been waiting for. (laughs) The Indricotheres. The giant rhinos. Now, that seems like a strange kind of thing to say, because if you think of a giant rhino, like white rhinos today, those are pretty big. Yeah, if you think of a big rhino, you're thinking of a rhino. Uh, Yeah, and that's wrong. (laughs) The classic image of an Indricotheer is the genus Paraceratherium, which has uh, over time also been Indricotherium and Baluchotherium. Uh, all of those are now synonymized under Paraceratherium, yep. as far as I know. Yeah, big Baluca. <laughs> <laughs> it is a big Baluca. <laughs> this group lived during the Oligocene, 35 to 25 million years ago or so. So side by side with those other two groups we mentioned. These are found across Asia, and they are enormous. Paraceratherium and similar rhinos had massive bodies, long legs, long necks, and a big ol' head at the end of it. Now, in terms of how massive we're talking, they are generally, the biggest ones are estimated to have stood about five to six meters tall at the shoulder, (laughs) so 15 to 20 feet tall, and then they had a neck, not quite a giraffe-like neck, but also a little bit more than you'd see like a horse. This is kind of like a slightly longer necked horse or like an okapi. Yeah, I'm, I'm picturing like okapi or, or maybe not llama for like to body size range, but right. unextended neck. The necks are, and a lot of these are known from incomplete remains, but the necks are estimated to be two to two and a half meters long, the six to eight foot long neck. And at the end of it, the largest species have skulls up to one and a half meters long. (laughs) That's four to five feet long among the longest skulls of any known land mammals ever. This is an animal that had a neck longer than me and a skull almost as long as me. And they have particularly long legs. Again, not giraffe-like legs. These are big, sturdy legs to hold up a big, sturdy animal. Estimates of their girth typically come in at around 15 to 20 tons. 
Yep. That is comparable to the largest elephants in history. Paraceratherium is often cited as the largest land mammal of all time. Yeah. It, and if they... it's not, it's in the top three or whatever of what we know. <laughs> there are a couple of proboscideans, elephants, that might be a contender. Well, it's it's one of those where if it's not the largest, it is a bitter rivalry. Right. With, it's real close. Like, it's in the same weight class. Yeah, there are <laughs> There would be avid fans voting for both. Right. Because it is real close and they're just so big. They're huge. And oftentimes when we talk about big things, you know, when we we will discuss, yeah, this animal was big, we'll say rhino-sized. Or if we're going real crazy, elephants. Oh, approaching elephant size. Yep. These were dinosaur-sized. Yes. Paraceratherium and its similar cousins were similar in size to the largest non-sauropod dinosaurs they're huge and there's more there are there are uh, extra little bits there on on their jaw they have a single pair of upper incisors so the incisors are the front teeth a single pair that are large cone-shaped and point downward like tusks (gasps) not walrus tusks these aren't huge but they are particularly large front teeth So they had what are sometimes interpreted as relatively small but significant tusks. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, man. There has also been some study that examined the shape of their nasal bone and interpret that they may also have had a mobile lip, kind of like a black rhino. Maybe even a proboscis, but it's hard to say for sure. Yeah. These were likely high browsers, which is to say they were eating stuff out of trees. Because, yeah, that's what you would do. Because that's what's at eye level. (laughs) And while we're talking about the skull, there is no evidence of horns. These were hornless, long-legged, long-necked, giant rhinos. One of the things that has always stood out to me the most about this group is it's a big animal, but it's not often talked about. Like, I don't see it discussed quite as famous as your mammoths and dinosaurs and things like that exactly so a lot of times when we think of big animals they fall into a few they fall into a few shape categories that we're used to like big things are either shaped like elephants or they're shaped like various kinds of dinosaurs this is like if you took a rhino and grabbed its body it's you know it's torso and hips and then just (laughs) raised it up just stretched the legs out and then grabbed the face and stretched the neck out With no horn. It makes me, honestly, uh, when I was trying to think of a way to describe them, they're kind of like a kaiju horse. Yeah, yeah. This is like if you took a horse and said, all right, what would we need to do to a horse's body to allow it to be 20 tons? Yes. Yeah. It's just a giant, monstrous horse. So This horse got bitten by a radioactive dinosaur. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's just, it's not shaped the way most of the big animals that we, that we are shown usually is shaped. And indeed, I'm glad you said that, because their legs are weird. They have long, relatively slender legs. They retained that sort of limb shape from those early ancestors, which is different from a lot of giant animals. When you think about elephants and other big things, they tend to have really shortened lower limbs. So like the toes and the hands tend to be sort of shortened squat. Here, they have long toes and hands. Hmm. The upper limb is kind of short, but they have 
it's not quite horse-like. I don't, you know, horses are very different. But it kind of has the legs of a more running-adapted animal. Yeah, for for such a large thing, it is kind of stilt-legged. Yeah, so they have, they're not quite built like a lot of other giant animals that we think of. Even like modern rhinos, mm-hmm, they're mm-hmm. a little bit odd. Now, exactly where this group fits has differed among the references I've read. Traditionally, they are identified as Indricotherianae within the Hyracodontids. Gotcha. So in older literature, you'll often read the Hyracodon, the running rhinos, includes the little ones and the enormous ones. (laughs) But I've seen a couple of recent studies that separate Paraceratheriidae as its own family, as its own major group. In either case, the earliest members of this group, again, Middle Eocene, 40 million years ago or so, and like all the other groups, they were very much like Hyracodon. Some of them start to show these familiar features early on. There is a genus from China, Jusha, Middle Eocene, which is cow-sized, which is pretty big. Yeah. And it's got somewhat longer legs, somewhat longer neck, and long incisors. So already then in the Middle Eocene, we're seeing the earliest signs of these Paraceratherium features. And then as we move from the late Eocene into the Oligocene, we see the true giants. And then there were several species of these across Asia throughout the Oligocene. And then they go extinct at the end of the Oligocene. So around the same time that we lose... Really, this is when we're seeing the decline of all three of the major groups we've talked about so far. There has been some speculation as to why the Indricotheres went extinct. As usual, uh, changing environments probably were the big uh, culprit, but it has been pointed out that there were cooling climates at the time, right? Oligocene into Miocene, we're seeing cooling climates. We're also seeing local climate effects in Asia associated with the uplift of the Himalayas, which we talked about in our India episode, episode 119. But another thing that I've seen a couple of uh, papers point out is that they go away around the similar time that gomphotheres, an ancient group of elephants, enter Asia. That makes sense. Which not only might mean competition, right? Because you're competing for uh, food sources, but... Elephants engineer ecosystems. Yes. They trample vegetation. They knock down trees. I read one discussion that hypothesized, you know, speculated that if you have this group of giant rhinos that can really only browse effectively high up and a bunch of elephants start moving in and knocking all the trees down, which is fine for elephants because they can browse from ground and up. Yeah. You might have started limiting resources these elephants again this is a hypothesis it's very hard to say for sure but they may have ecosystem engineered the indricotheres away yeah they may have terraformed asia (laughs) to be non-indricotheer friendly uh which i mean i i've got to assume something as big as as paraceratherium and whatnot had to be doing some ecosystem engineering like you would think you had to be doing stuff if you go for a walk, you change the landscape. Exactly. Like, there's no way something that big can't, can just have uh, effectively no effect on the shape of the environment around them. Right. But it could be that they were just engineering in different ways. Right. Well, and elephants are, fam- today at least, famous for knocking down trees. Yeah, active 
changing of their environment. I want this not here anymore. Right. Uh, which would seem like a weird thing for Indricathirs to do since they're eating those. Yeah, exactly. They might not be, they might be doing other stuff. They might still be trampling and keeping underbrush right. in check in a way, but they're not actively reshaping the forest. Oh, one last note. There was a book that came out about Indricathirs several years ago that on the cover featured artwork that is sort of a somewhat famous artwork of an Indricathir that had elephant-like ears. <laughs> oh, yeah. So it's got the long neck and the big skull and then these flappy elephant ears up there, and it looks real silly. That was a hypothesis put forth in the book, and the, the logic was, yeah, they're big like elephants. That's how elephants stay cool, mm-hmm. right? They stop from overheating. Maybe Indricathirs had that. Uh, that has not been received with enthusiasm by everybody <laughs> that didn't catch on uh and as, as there's no as far as i know there's no evidence to say that that's the case in Drinkathirs, funnily enough we don't as far as i know we don't have uh we have good remains of Drinkathirs, but we don't have a lot of like complete skeletal remains which is why so many of those size estimates are estimates yeah like the length of legs and necks and certain uh, members is difficult to know so we've got the running rhinos the swamp rhinos and the giant rhinos the biggins the biggins all three of which show up mid-eocene thrive for a while and then seem to be either gone or on their way out by the end of the oligocene there is one more major group which we will follow the rest of the way this is the rhinoceratidae if you like the true rhinos the real rhinos. The real, yeah, this is it. This, these are the real rhinos. Uh, this is the group that will eventually include all of our modern rhino uh, members. This also includes most of the well-known rhino fossils. If you have heard of an ancient rhino, and it's not an Indricathir, odds are it's going to show up in this group. Stop me if you've heard this one before. The earliest members of this group are known from around the Middle Eocene in North America and Asia. I've heard about that time. Like all the rest. Uh, they emerge from the same early stock. The earliest forms were similar to Hyracodon, you know, sort somewhat longer limbed, that general early perissodactyl shape. Among these, uh, even in those early days, we start to see more familiar forms. For example, in the late Eocene of North America, we have a rhino called Trigonius, which already has a very rhino-like body. I'm showing Will a picture. This is a cow-sized animal, which is, is a pretty good size, and it the general shape, it looks like a rhino. It has in its lower jaw those long blade-like incisors. Nice. And the upper jaw it has a smaller teeth that act as grinding stones or as wet stones, so when it opens and closes its mouth, the lower ones get sharpened, which is what we see in Indian rhinos today. Yep. yep, yep. So this is an early small rhino-sized animal that looks like a rhino. It's pretty rhino-shaped. The, the Really, the only thing that stands out about it is it's got a, a kind of a long, narrow skull compared to what the like the really beefy rhino skulls you think right. of. But it looks even more so than uh, you were commenting with the earlier ones. Oh, yes. That's a rhino skull. No, you know, it looks like a rhino skull that you have stretched out a bit. Like, mm-hmm. it, it looks like a rhino just with a longer face. This group, the early true, true rhinos... Continue to diversify throughout the Oligocene. They're known throughout North America and Asia. Eventually, they enter Europe uh, relatively early on. They come in a varying different sizes, including a number like Trigonius that are cow or horse-sized. 
So we're looking at animals that are probably around a ton. Not bad. Around the late Oligocene to early Miocene, so now we're around 25 to 20 million years ago, is also, I believe, when we see rhinos, this group gets into Africa. Oh, okay. So up until like, most of what we've been talking about has been in North America, Europe, and Asia, the northern continents. Uh, this group does eventually make it into Africa. Also around that time, late Oligocene, early Miocene, 25, 20 million years ago, we see horns. <gasps> Finally. Or at least some evidence of horns. There are a couple of rhinos that are classically listed oftentimes as these are the ones where we see horns. One is a late Oligocene rhino from, the nor again, the northern continents, named Diceratherium, Dicera, two horns, and it appears to have rugosities at the tip of the nose that have been interpreted as two side-by-side Small horns. Oh. Not tandem horns, but paired horns. Yeah. In some species, this area actually develops into ridges of bone or flanges. So the actual skull kind of flares up a little bit. Another uh, off-sighted example is a rhino called Monoceros from slightly later, early Miocene. This one's only pig size. This is a small one. No. That also has similar paired rugosities and sometimes a flare at the tip of the snout. I'm showing Will a picture wow. of Monoceros. Yeah, it's a pair of little bumps, knobs at the end of the, the snoot. Yeah, it flares out in a very particular way. Interesting. Now, like I said, these are commonly listed as among the earliest known horned rhinos. And they're thought to be unrelated. Okay. Relatively speaking, so that this could be two independent origins of horns. But I also read a 2009 study that was a study about horns that suggested that there might those might not have enough evidence to suggest horns. But that study, the earliest one they identified, was a rhino called Gaindotherium from Asia, which is also early Miocene. Oh, okay. So whatever the case was, it seems by about 20 million years ago, rhinos have horns, the earliest evidence of horns. If, if indeed we do have multiple uh, originations of horns in this group, that makes me wonder, because they're all situated on the snout. Yeah, uh, right at the end of the snout. And and even if it's, you know, side by side or, or some other, you know, situation of horn, uh, that's still the same location, which mm -hmm. makes me wonder if it did evolve separately, what was it about that location that made you put your horn there and not up toward the top of your head like most other horned animals that put their horns yeah yeah you know uh so like is there were you using your snout to still bump you know were you already doing that bumping with your snout you know was there a behavior that meant hey you know if we sharpen this up it'll be real good well a lot of them had tusks mm -hmm. so if you're already using those tusks and in fact that paper about the horns points out that there is potential evidence of that armor-like skin much earlier Okay, okay. That that may have evolved earlier, maybe along with the tusks. Yeah, for tusk combat. So there was already using the front of your face for that. But I'm glad you bring up the why, because that paper also pointed out that this time period is where we see horn and antler evolution in a bunch of other ungulate mammals as well. Oh. And it roughly lines up with the onset of spreading grasslands. There you go. 
that this could be, again, this is always very hard to say for sure, but it might be that it wasn't just that there was pressure for have a weapon at the front of your mouth, because you already had that Mm -hmm. if you had tusks, but for something visible. Yes. Something for more visual communication in your new open habitats. Which is both useful to be able to communicate with your your own kind from a distance, but also to go, hey, predators that are eyeing me, mm-hmm. look at this big thing on my nose. Right. As dramatic and exciting as it is, when a hippo opens its mouth and you go, oh, I did not, I'm sorry, I didn't realize you had an arsenal. Yes. Hidden away. If you can show it off from far away, that you don't even have to get up close. Exactly. Yeah. You might not even have to threaten if I can just see, if I can just see your halberd. <laughs> That's right. That's a very interesting idea. Another thought that comes to mind with a lot of these is uh, we have the evidence that there may have been horns and they're like, we could tell that it looks like there may have been horns side by side instead of in front and back, mm-hmm. but we still don't get the shape. Right. Uh, which is something I always just, just marvel over because today's rhino horns are often not shaped the way I would assume a rhino horn would be shaped if you described it like some of them get so thin well like black rhinos have those long almost blade like yeah thin horns like at the tip it's like a rapier and i would assume especially if you told me how big around they were at the base Mm -hmm. that's all right i i i'm picturing like a triceratops nose horn that's kind of more of a stout cone you know not a long thin sword yeah but that's not the case and, and it, so it's hard to tell. Yeah. Were these two squat, sharp horns or were they bulby horns or were they also, did you have just antennae right. <laughs> coming off the end of your nose? As we go through the Oligocene and Miocene, we also see diversification in rhino feeding styles. There are multiple times, not only possible multiple horn evolutions, but there are multiple origins of high crowned teeth. We talked about that in our teeth episode way back in episode 88, that those correlate with grazing. Yes. In fact, here in North America, across the Miocene, so that's 20 million-ish to 5 million-ish million years ago. So that's 20 million-ish to 5 million-ish years ago. Many sites have one species of browsing rhino and one species of grazing rhino living side by side. One specializing in grass and one specializing in leafy stuff. The rhino yin and yang of sites. The classic go-to example, uh, oftentimes of the browser, is aphalops. This was a group of rhinos that were estimated one to two tons, so modern rhino-sized, relatively long legs, and that nasal shape again, evidence of a potentially flexible lip like black rhinos today. The tooth shape and isotope studies suggest these were browsers, And then oftentimes, perhaps the most famous uh, on the grazing side, is a rhino called Teleoceros. Yay! Now, we are very familiar with Teleoceros. Teleoceros, again, often estimated one to two tons. These had much shorter legs, rounder bodies, and the teeth and the isotopes indicate that they are usually grazing, eating more grass. Teleoceros also, incidentally, tends to have those lower tusks uh, similar to we described before, that uh, uh, what I've seen described as chisel-like incisors. Which is such a good description for their shape. Yep. And some Teleoceros species. In fact, our friend Laura told me that most of them are interpreted to have had horns. Really? Uh, probably small horns. The Teleoceratine rhinos are also famous for another thing. 
not only are we seeing repeated evolution of certain, you know, horn things and tooth things and diet things, teleoceratines are extremely famous for being hippo-shaped. Uh, Will and I are very familiar with teleoceros because we got them at the Gray Fossil Site. Yeah. So we've spent lots of time up close and personal with teleoceros bones. Teleoceratines, even more so than what I've seen of those, the swamp rhinos uh, from images, ha- these rhinos have very short legs, barrel-shaped bodies, again, those big lower incisors, and for a long time, these were also thought to potentially be semi-aquatic. The return of the swamp rhinos. <laughs> now, this isn't 100%. There was a, there have been a few studies. Uh, for example, I, I found one uh, from just 2020, just a year, uh, last year, that looked at oxygen isotopes in the bones and teeth and di- found that they did not quite match hippos. Okay. And the sort of isotopic signature you'd expect from an animal spending most of its time in the water. Now, they do point out that it could just be a behavioral difference. Just because you don't quite have the same chemical signature as a hippo doesn't mean that you couldn't have been doing something similar. Yeah, you might be less aquatic, but still fairly aquatic. Right. But there has been some back and forth on whether or not the teleoceros rhinos were hippo-like. The fact that they are also often grazers lends to that idea. Hippos are famously lounge in the water during the day and then come out to lawn to mow the lawns at night yep so teleoceros has often been interpreted as doing that in fact the hippo like like shape shows up a few times in the rhino serrated family oh so this is a thing that has shown up at least a handful of times across the grand rhino spectrum rhinos like being the shape of hippos which is not too shocking because even today the animal I compared them to. Yeah, rhino and hippo are very similar. They've, they've fallen a very, very uh, a heavily overlapping size and shape category. So it, it takes very little tweaking to get a rhino to be extremely hippo shaped. Yeah. So that makes sense. It's just interesting. I want to know how, how hippo like were you behaving? Yeah. Now, incidentally, I don't know very much about off the top of my head the history, the evolutionary history of hippos. There's a good chance hippos are rhino-like. <laughs> I don't think hippos go back. I, I don't think we had a hippo-like hippos at the time of the swamp rhinos. <laughs> so hippos are the swamp rhino-like. Across the Miocene, just as a couple of fun notes, there are a few here in North America famous rhino sites. The agate fossil beds in Nebraska famously have tons of monoceros, that potentially double-horned one I mentioned. Ashfall fossil beds, also in Nebraska, uh, which is a whole ecosystem preserved in ash, famously has lots and lots of teleoceros. And, now this is technically not Miocene, early Pliocene, but the Gray Fossil Site. Woo! Now, the Gray Fossil Site is not world famous for its rhinos, but we do have a unique species of teleoceros. Yet. Yet. We're working on it. (laughs) Starting right now, the Gray Fossil Site here in East Tennessee. Check it out for all your rhino needs. Our species of teleoceros is a weird one because it's a little bit taller mm-hmm. than most of the. It's it's slightly less hippo-like, and it seems to have been a browser. Yep. We don't have a grazing rhino at our site, possibly because our grazing rhino became a browsing rhino. Yep, yep, yep. But it's still got those big, scary tusks. And it does. A very barrel-like rib cage. Like it, it's so wide and round. That's got those two lower incisors and you can, the, the upper incisors, 
are just pebbles. Yeah, they're just these, They, I mean, they really do look like whetstones. And when we find them, they are often polished. Mm-hmm. They have this lovely, shiny edge. In fact, if you go to the Grey Fossil Site social media pages, I recently we've posted a handful of pictures of them. You see these lovely, polished edges. And those tusks are sharp. Yep. Like someone asked, I was on a tour a couple of weeks ago, and a kid asked, what animal at your fossil site had the sharpest teeth? And I was like, oh, interesting. And I was like, oh, yeah, the saber-toothed cats we have and this and that. And I, I, I was in the lab, so I went, Laura, what do you think? And she held up the rhino tusk. And I went, oh, yeah, no, that's probably the answer. <laughs> Those are really dangerous. Like, I could very effectively hurt somebody with that five million year old fossilized tusk. Well, when you said chisel like, I feel like a lot of people when they think of chisels think of like rock chisels, like the tink, tink, tink. I'm engraving something right. into stone. But like most chisels, wood chisels, and even metal cutting chisels are extremely sharp. Yeah. That's how they cut so precisely. That's, how they chisel. That's why you get <laughs> such nice clean finishes with a chisel. These teeth literally are chisel-like. They are sharpened yeah. with a, not flat edge, but a wide, long edge. Yeah. And a razor tip. Just, just that edge is kept so pristine by those teeth, and I would yeah. not want to be bitten by it. Nope. Yeah, they're so cool. They're, they're such cool-looking teeth. Yeah, they really are. <laughs> Around the end of the Miocene, so now we're uh, practically yesterday, we're at about five million years ago, there is a worldwide big decline in rhinos. Wow. This is a big rhino extinction. Not, a, not necessarily a mass extinction, but we do lose a lot of things. Across the world, we see cooling, drying climates, changes in vegetation. In many places, for example, this favors grasslands uh, instead of forests or other sort of changes. These environmental shifts are linked with extinctions, in many large herbivore groups around the Miocene to Pliocene transition, camels, horses, mastodons, and rhinos. Many of the major groups of Miocene rhinos see major declines, including the Teleoceros rhinos. And right around the end of the Miocene, beginning of the Pliocene, is when North America loses rhinos. Oh. And we haven't gotten them back since, outside of zoos and stuff and and our continent got supremely less cool yep we have not had rhinos here for about four and a half million years at the gray fossil site one of the fun notes that i like to share on tours is that we have some of the last rhinos that ever lived in north america yeah yeah rhinos as we move into the pliocene and the pleistocene the last few million years are old world exclusive within those last few million years mostly what's left are modern rhinos and their relatives. Most of our modern species are thought to have evolved within the last five million years or so, and their early members lived alongside uh, some famous ancient relatives. Stefano rhinus uh, includes Merck's rhino and the narrow-nosed rhino. These are known from Europe and Asia, particularly in the Pleistocene, the Ice Age. These were browsing rhinos that looked a lot like modern rhinos. Two tandem horns, one in front of the other, one to two tons, these, what you would have looked at this and gone, yeah, that's a rhino, just like what we have today. Also in the Pleistocene, Coleodonta, which includes woolly rhinos. Yay! These are uh, interpreted predominantly as grazers across Europe and Asia. This is one of the most famous ancient rhinos. They had long hair like a woolly mammoth, two big horns, a massive hump 
on the back, and these got quite large. I've seen estimates of two and up to three tons, so the size of the biggest rhinos today. We know a lot about these rhinos because not only have we found frozen carcasses and permafrost, this is young enough to still have them frozen, but also cave paintings. Yes. Depict woolly rhinos. We have been drawing rhinos for as long as we could draw rhinos. Yep. Some, <laughs> someone woke up one day and went, I'm going to draw and I'm going to draw the coolest thing around. <laughs> it's, now I'm just picturing like, you know, an art history page, but of rhino art. And at one end you have the cave art of woolly rhinos. And at the other end you have rock steady. we've just been using you now i say they woke up and said i'm going to draw the coolest thing around this would have been ice age like europe yeah which is why they didn't find any good snakes or crocs around in the vicinity so they had to settle for something they may do with what they had yeah you know one other ancient pleistocene rhino that is important to mention is elasmotherium the other probably most famous ancient rhino sometimes called the steppe rhino more famously, and I, th- I feel like this is a more recent thing, the Siberian Unicorn. Yeah, that's definitely newer because I knew of this animal when I was a kid and that's not what it was called. Yeah, I feel like that's emerged in the last several years. It's a, it's a very catchy name, but <laughs> it is not the classic name, but it's a good name. Uh, it's what Mando had to go get the egg from to get all of his stuff back from yes. the Jawas. <laughs> <laughs> Elasmotherium is famous uh, in part for being quite large. They're as tall as a modern rhino. Uh, Again, I've seen weight estimates up to three tons. I've even seen in some places estimates up to five tons. Wow. Now, I don't, you know, I didn't track down where those came from. And often there are high end, like the Indricotheres for a while, early estimates had them at like 30 to 40 tons, which were later brought down. But if these were five tons, that now you're elephant sized. Yep, yep, yep. That's big. Elasmotherium had surprisingly relatively long slender legs possibly a more efficient mover. They are famous for their extremely specialized molars, their cheek teeth. They had very large, ever-growing cheek teeth. Wow. They had teeth kind of like rabbits or rodents, more than, (laughs) in some respects, other rhinos. See, like, now that makes me, that was exactly what I started picturing. Because, like, if you've ever had a rabbit or a mouse or a hamster that you've had to take care of, you have to give them things to chew on. You know, right. to keep their ever-growing incisors right. healthy. And those are the front teeth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, because they will overgrow and become uh, an impediment to their health and their ability to chew and eat. Uh, now I'm just picturing <laughs> Elasmotherium going up to, like, branches and just going, ang, ang, <laughs> just constantly gnawing on stuff to keep its molars in check. Well, generally, those are interpreted as being for grazing. Yes. So they're eating lots of tough grass. Which makes more sense, but is less funny. Now, there is the other thing that Elasmotherium is famously known for, and that is the big old dome on its head. Elasmotherium has just this bulb of bone on its forehead, and that is typically interpreted as being the base for a giant horn. Just a mass. It's typically drawn as just this long, slightly curving horn. And it's not on the tip of the nose. It's on the forehead, kind of between the eyes. Mm Mm-hmm. Hence the unicorn name. Now, uh, most art, like you said, interprets this as a big uh, horn, sometimes over two meters long. Mm -hmm. There is some possible cave art depicting these rhinos. But just like I think a month or so ago, a very recent paper came out that suggested that that 
big dome on their head isn't to support a horn. Mm-hmm. But instead, that it was a space for possibly enhancing the nasal passages, for improving the sense of smell, or even as a resonating chamber for noises like hadrosaurs had. Mm. Now, this has been received with mixed reviews. Yep. <laughs> but, yeah, there has been some recent discussion. Recent enough that I have to mention it on this episode. Yep. Of a, a bit of back and forth, kind of going back to what you were saying, where if all we have is the base of the structure, it is very difficult sometimes to know for sure what that horn or feature actually looked like. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're you're missing the actual thing. So you're having to, you know, it, it, it'd be like trying to interpret what a tree looked like just from the root system. Right. Which I'm sure you could get inferences of like, this is growing like this kind of tree. But how tall was it? You know, mm-hmm. how, where was, how much was it branching? That's kind of what we're dealing with here is we have the base plate, but we don't have the actual horn attached to it. There could be plenty of them who have weird bumpy spots and no horn. It just, it may have been bumpy for some other reason. Doing something else. Uh, But also this one brought me back to wondering why so many of them show up at the snout. Mm -hmm. Uh, If this was a horn, it is one not at the tip of the snout. Yeah, it's in a weird place. Uh, Which makes me wonder why did we not see this in more, right? Like, why why is this the only one I've ever heard of with a bulb up on the forehead? Right. Was it doing something different? Yep. Uh, Perhaps time will tell. At the end of the Pleistocene epoch around 12,000 years ago, we see another major extinction. Uh, This one we talked about in episode 25. This is the late Pleistocene megafaunal extinction, which also had to do with changing environments, changing climates, and also the fact that there were humans around now. Yeah, so maybe, maybe not our fault. And this is where Europe loses its rhinos. (laughs) So as we enter the modern era, the modern last several thousand years, the Holocene epoch, all that's left are modern rhinos, our five living species. And then, of course, uh, in the last couple of centuries, we see another major decline as modern humans start being terrible. Yeah, definitely our fault. That, oh, yeah, no, that we, we did that. that. That one's on us. And in the coming couple of centuries, when these rhinos go extinct for good, that'll be our fault, too. Yep. I saw a thing once several years ago, and it was the first time I had ever heard it framed this way, and it stuck in my mind. It was the thought of a parent in the not-too-distant future having to explain to their child what a rhino was. Yep. That you'd be watching a movie, like you would be watching Black Panther, Mm -hmm. and that animal would run across, and the kid would be like, wow, look at that crazy animal, and you'd have to go, well, all right, let's talk. That used to exist. Yeah, your, your grandma... Used to go see him at the zoo. Mm-hmm. <sighs> There's something just just so tragic about the idea that something that an animal as impressive as Triceratops yes. may soon have to be looked at the same way as Triceratops. And not because a giant asteroid hit the planet, right. but because we were idiots. A bunch of jerks. So rhinos, even without our influence, have been on this sort of general decline over time they were once very diverse what we have today is a mere remnant of this ancient diversity of this group and their evolutionary history is full of all these really cool diverse different forms rhinos have been much more than what they are today yes Uh, and it's a very cool group to examine 
Before we finish up, there is one more section that I want to add on here, in part because, as I mentioned at the beginning, this was requested. There are a number of ancient animals that weren't rhinos, but that you'd be forgiven for looking at and thinking, boy, that that sure is a rhino. Bunch of rhino-shaped things. Yes, I am titling this section, Rhino-like horny beasts. <laughs> uh, we kind of did a similar thing in the hyenas episode. Yep. Uh, episode 109, and also in the cats episode. Yep. Episode 93, because evolution likes to repeat itself. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about three groups in particular of things that aren't rhinos. First up, the brontotheers. Yeah. The thunder beasts. Uh, Good name. Dirty deeds and all that. The most famous is brontotherium. Which, as far as I can tell, is not called Brontotherium anymore. It is Megacerops, uh, which has also uh, includes what used to be Brontops and Titanotherium. Megacerops is still real good. Megacerops, yeah. Ugh. Megacerops is from the Ladyocene, where all the way back 35-ish million years ago, North America. This looks like a rhino. Roughly two meters tall, two to three tons, thick limbs like rhinos today. And famously, a pair of blunt horns on the tip of the snout. These are not pointy horns. Mm -hmm. They are blunt and they are bone. Yes. Like, unlike rhinos, which have the, just the base plate, these actually had bone cores going up. Yes. This is part of the skull. So you see it in the fossil. It's got these two sort of long, they're not quite little knobs. Prongs. Kinda, uh, yeah. Like they, they, and they're rounded and blunt. Exactly. They look, if we're comparing to modern animals, they look very much like the quote horns on a giraffe. Yes, exactly. The ossicones, as they're called. Mm-hmm. So if you don't know what we're talking about, go look up a picture of a giraffe and go, oh right, yeah. Between their ears, there are two just kind of horns, just these blunt protuberances. You know what they look like in front of Walmart. There are those pillars <laughs> with the rounded tops that yeah. keep you from driving through. Those have a name. Yep. I can't think of it. Those The purpose of those is to keep cars. They're filled with concrete. Uh, yes. It looks like two of those, but tiny, sticking off the nose. Yep. So that you can't drive all the way up the neck of a giraffe. Yeah. That stops you from getting all the way <laughs> this up. This keeps other brontotheres from driving into their fa- <laughs> It is to block them. These have been compared to ossicones, the tip of the brontothere nose. They are uh, probably covered in skin, like giraffe ossicones are. As with rhino horns, these are most likely for display, possibly for competition. Brontotheres as a whole group are known from the Eocene, North America, Asia, some in Europe. So like rhinos, they are across the northern continents. Early ones were small, but eventually they evolve much more diversity. They come in small to large sizes. Some have no horns, some have little horns or knobs, and some have particularly weird structures. Embolotherium from late Eocene Mongolia, similar in size to Megacerops, has this really tall structure at the tip of its nose that is often uh, compared to a battering ram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Parabrontops, also from Mongolia, has just a big bulb. (laughs) Just a big sphere at the end of its nose. Just a mace on its nose. Brontotheres were among the most diverse large herbivores of the Eocene, across the Eocene. And these are not rhinos, 
but they are very close. Mm-hmm. They are perissodactyls. Yeah. Yep, so yep. these are kind of like Nimravids for cats. Yes. Not really cats, but they're, they're, they are pretty close. Yeah, you're, you're not uh, a completely separate group that just converged real hard into a rhino shape. Right. Your ancestors were the same shape as rhino's ancestors. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Your ancestors were the same as rhino ancestors. Yeah, so like <laughs> you started with the same base anatomy. Yep. And you just kind of went parallel with the rhinos. And they look so similar that, as you said, if I didn't know what a brontothere was, I would definitely look at it and be like, wow, that's a hyper-specialized rhino. Yeah, look at that cool rhino. Like, it instead of just having a plate for its keratin, it's... It has uh, extended it. Made bone there. Like, it's got, you know, it's got more of a sloping f- head to it, and it's got like a big bison spine on the back. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a, a weird rhino, but I yeah. would completely believe it was just a very derived rhino. Now, here's a fun fact. Traditionally, brontotheres are classified as part of the hippomorpha side of perissodactyls. Ah. So not on the rhino taper side, but on the horse side. Weird. There has been some disagreement over the years, though, on that. Here's one fun uh, difference. These brontotheres have four toes on the front feet. Oh. Rhinos have three. So these had feet like tapers. Oh. Brontotheres go extinct at the end of the Eocene around the same time that all our other rhino-rhino groups are starting to really take off. Our second group of not-quite-rhinos are Uintotheres. The most famous of these is Uintotherium from the Eocene of North America. Again, rhino-shaped, large body, thick legs, two meters tall, probably up to two tons in weight, and their skulls are so weird. I am showing Will a picture of Uintotherium now. Yep, I remember these from when I was a kid. They are bizarre. This was one of those fossil groups as a kid that I was always fascinated by because of how weird they were but that I never liked because of how ugly they were. (laughs) (laughs) The skull of Uintotherium has three pairs of knob-like protuberances on its skull. Again, kind of think like giraffe ossicones or flaring parts of the skull. A pair at the tip of the nose, a pair a little farther back on the snout, on the the maxilla, the, the upper part of the jaw, and a pair on the back of the head. Six horns across its skull. The skull has all these weird flares and concavities. <laughs> it just got. It has all these swoops and dips and, uh, like you said, flaring. Yep. It looks like a skate park. And you went to fears had saber teeth. Would would you, would you, what? And not like the kind of, these are sort of tusks and when you close your mouth, they're kind of... It's not like a peccary where it's like, oh yeah, you got some sharp teeth when you open your mouth. Right. No, no. These are like saber-toothed cat canines. Like, I'm reaching my chin with my teeth. And the chin has flanges that the chin part of the lower jaw, the bone, dips down a little bit as extra support for these long saber teeth. It looks like a saber-toothed cat skull. Yeah, we see that flaring of the chin, that dipping of the chin in saber-toothed cats. Yes. <laughs> so you went to theaters, not rhinos, and just... Th- this is like the first run at rhinos. These are long before uh, proper rhinos. This is like they did it, and then they went extinct, and then evolution was doing rhinos again, and went, hang on, remember what happened last time? <laughs> Let's scale it back a little bit. Yeah. Maybe wait a few. Maybe wait a couple dozen million years before we try horns. We went a little crazy that first time. 
We're older and wiser now. Uintathirs actually show up in the late Paleocene, so back, you know, over 55 million years ago, and they are around until the Middle Eocene. So this group actually has its full run before most of the rhino family. We're seeing the earliest of those rhinos as this group is on their way out. Uintathirs also northern continents, Asia and North America. The earliest ones in the Paleocene are small, pig-sized omnivores. The big ones are known from the Eocene, like Uintotherium, Tethiopsis. There's another one called Eobacillus, which is another one that I've seen possible estimates of up to five tons. Again, I didn't track down where that estimate came from, so that might be an outdated estimate. But yeah, these are rhino-sized and maybe small elephant-sized. And indeed, they are among the earliest mammals to get big, big. Huh. These were some of the first truly mega herbivore mammals. They were the biggest animals around of their time in the Middle Eocene. Many of them had similar ornamentations to Uintotherium. Some didn't have any like that. There's one Gobiotherium in Mongolia that didn't have tusks or horns, but instead had a big round snout, <laughs> just a big ball snout. And flaring cheekbones. So they had just all sorts of weird skull stuff going on. Yeah, just I I extreme face decoration. The big ones are uh, interpreted as being browsers, those later big ones. The shape of the nasal bones, again, has by some been interpreted as evidence of that mobile lip. I've even seen some reference to the shape of the lower jaw as maybe hinting at a long tongue. Okay. Like a giraffe tongue. To help with stripping. I don't know why you'd need the tongue and the lip. Yeah. Because but. because when they said, when they went to the list of face accessories, they said <laughs> yes to all of them. Yes to all of them. <laughs> uh, here's another little fun fact. Uintotheres are often found in river channel deposits. Ah. So they have also been suggested as maybe living like hippos. <laughs> <laughs> Saber-toothed hippos. Now this group, uh, Uintotheres belong to a group called Dinocerata. And exactly where Dinocerata fits on the mammal family tree is not 100% sure. Some studies have suggested that they are uh, relatives of the earliest ungulates, the hoofed mammals. Uh, some have put them closer to elephants, proboscideans. I even saw one reference as, uh, of them as possible close relatives of lagomorphs. <laughs> That's rabbits. <laughs> Again, I didn't track that one down, so I don't know what the full story is there. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Just monster rabbit. We'll show them. <laughs> uh, well, in any case, they finished first. Uh, the Uintotheres are gone by the Ladyocene. So basically, the st all the interesting rhino stuff starts and gets going while these guys are basically gone. And then finally, one last group to talk about of rhino-like things. The Arsinoetheres, specifically Arsinoetherium. This is one genus of animal known from the late Eocene to early Oligocene of North Africa. So again, during the sort of, of a lot of those other rhinos are having their heyday. This is an animal, again, large body, thick legs, rhino shaped, two meters tall, probably browsing with a very iconic look that I'm showing Will. Right. A pair side by side of just enormous of like cartoonishly big cartoonishly large pointy horns on its head and again 
bone. Yes. These, these are, are part of the bone. Like the Uintatheres, like the Bronotheres, these are all in the bone. And when we say enormous, we don't mean that they're they're long and impressive. It They are like... They're half the head. It's Well, it's like the bell of a trombone. Just like, <laughs> just these wide, like, uh, 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 cornucopia type horns coming off the face. Right. The base of these horns. And they're, they're angled sort of forward. So they kind of swoop forward yeah, off kinda, the skull. Kind of coming off at a 45 from the, the top of the skull. But the effective base of the horns goes from the nose to the eyes. Yes. Just that whole snout it's is just, the foundation of the horn. It's a very broad horn. Yes. Uh, and I can only imagine if that also had any covering. Oh, it would be enormous. Like, if you also have a keratin sheath over that, how, to, how far are you taking these horns? Now, uh, the other fun thing with that is that those horns are so ostentatious that they can distract you from the fact that it also has horns above its eyes. Yes. Yeah, it does. It's yeah. got little, very little, just little horns above the eyes, like, like a ceratopsian might, but yes. these are much, much smaller than triceratops. <laughs> so it's got these giant horns and then these little horns above the eyes. Uh, these might have been covered in keratin. They might have been covered in skin. Who knows? very impressive. Again, I'll put a bunch of pictures in the blog post so people can see what we're talking about. Whenever I look at the skeleton, I keep expecting to have those those tall vertebra spines at the oh, shoulders. Like a bison. Like a bison. Muscle. Like the brontothere had. Especially because you're carrying around two pontoons on your face. <laughs> but it's actually, they're not, they don't really seem that ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's just an oddly shaped animal. It's also got kind of a pointy front of the face. It does. These are these. This is a very unusual uh, animal, Arsinoetherium. Oh, and here's a fun fact about Arsinoetherium: the general shape of its body has led some to suggest that they might have been aquatic. Well, because those horns are actually hollow, and they right, are that's flotation that's, devices. Exactly. Well, they had <laughs> the the nasal passage actually goes all the way up to the tip of the horn, so they can snorkel. Uh, that's not true. I'm not, I made that up. Nope. These are all lies. There was a study apparently that looked at their forelimbs. The, the front legs, and found that they would have moved best in a propulsion motion Okay. for swimming. But like teleoceratines, there have been isotope data that suggests that maybe they weren't living like hippos. Mm -hmm. But just to round off the fact that things really want to be like hippos right. <laughs> all through history. <laughs> Arsinoetherium belongs to a group called the Embrithopoda, which are known from Eocene to Oligocene, but not known very well. Uh, so this was around, again, this is Eocene to Oligocene, the same time as uh, the the earlier big groups of rhinos. Most of the embrithopods are known from partial skulls and teeth. They are found across Afro-Arabia, so North Africa and the uh, Middle East Arabia region. There are also some known from Europe and Asia. As far as I could find, horns are only known in Arsinoetherium. So this one genus is the only one where we have horns. But we don't have very complete remains of some of the other ones. So they might have also had horns, but we don't have the evidence for it. Gotcha. This group is even more mysterious than the the Uintatheres and the Dinocerata. I have seen references of Arsinoetherium placed as a relative near elephants and sea cows, or near hyraxes, or with artiodactyls. Or with Dinocerata. <laughs> the Uintatheres. <laughs> 
Who wants this thing? <laughs> Somebody claim this. Somebody take care of this monstrosity. Whose weird horn animal is this? <laughs> is this somebody's bike? <laughs> so suffice it to say, for the last 60 million years, mammal evolution has been very excited about the the the, the rhino concept. Yes. There was a huge diversity of rhinos. The rhino rhinoid extended family just has all of this fascinating diversity, these really well-known, relatively well-studied animals, everything from sheep-like running animals to the largest land mammals of all time, the kaiju horses, to the horn stuff, the famous horn stuff. And then there's a bunch of these other famous horn stuff that aren't rhinos. It's this wonderful menagerie of rhino history. Well, one of the things that really piques my interest about it is that today rhinos are kind of weird for having their horn on their nose yeah like almost every other horned mammal that we have has it on the back of the head yeah and rhinos are also weird in gen they're not really shaped quite like anything else Mm -mm. they're weird and so today they stand out as this these truly unique animals on earth but actually Mm-hmm. If you go back through mammal history, there's been a lot of rhino-shaped animals, like being big with a large head and a decorations on your face has actually been kind of normal. Yeah. And if you think about it, even in the, the broader view, if you go back before the Paleocene, exactly. the Cretaceous was full of ceratopsians, horned dinosaurs. Yes, that's exactly where I was thinking. Which are also extremely rhino-shaped. So like... This shape of being a somewhat squat, somewhat, you know, a very robust, large head with your with your uh, armament up front instead of on the back top of your head, like mm-hmm. at the front of your face, is actually a, a, a pretty consistent trend yeah. throughout large vertebrate nature, uh, like history. Yeah, there have been rhino-like things... For a long, and even in the Triassic, there were like weird early reptiles, and there might even have been early synapsids in the Permian that were kind of like this. I do remember there. I don't remember its name, but I do remember one that has that that those face flares mm-hmm. and like those knobs coming off of the cheeks and so, stuff. So this is as weird as they are today. They are following in a grand tradition, and what's so funny to me about that is thinking into the future. Right, if rhinos. It's possible that they would have continued to dwindle, right? Rhinos have been declining for the last several million years, generally speaking. Yes. Uh, They're definitely dwindling now. So if rhinos do vanish at some point uh, in the not-too-distant future, there is an extremely good chance, it seems, that something else... Yes. ...tapers or hippos or, I don't know, goats are going to evolve into a very similar... (laughs) large-bodied horned animal. It's like a thing that there has to be. It's a yeah. fixed point. <laughs> well, and that's, that's what really was kind of getting to me is we so often like to talk about, you know, the the general ecosystem roles of the mm-hmm. large predator, the large herbivores, the grazers, the small nimble, you know, grazers and the small nimble predators. And I feel like rhinos, at least when I hear it discussed, often get left out of those yeah. broad example lists. they're weird. Yeah. It doesn't really fit, but doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Of <laughs> like, it does. Like, they do when you actually step back and look at the <laughs> world 
in perspective, there's a rhino niche. Yeah. <laughs> that there's a rhino shaped hole in all ecosystems. Yes. <laughs> and that's that's so amazingly cool. How weird is that? Oh, <laughs> I love it. So this has, as usual, been our whirlwind tour of a fascinating group of animals. I had a ton of fun learning about rhinos. Like I said, I will put a bunch of images in the blog post so you can all see the pictures we've been geeking out about <laughs> over the course of our discussion. We hope you've all enjoyed uh, this discussion of rhinos. We hope you're happy, Jenna. <laughs> but before we wrap up, uh, we have one last thing to address, and that is our patron question. Patron question! Patrons of a certain level on our Patreon get to submit questions for us to answer here on the podcast. This episode, what's our patron question, Will? Our question is from June, who asks, Do we know of any examples of neoteny within Lepidoptera? Are there any axolotl-type moths or butterflies that remain in their caterpillar life stage for their entire lives without metamorphosing? And if not, could you speculate on what factors and selective pressures might result in such an organism? Fascinating question. That's, that's a really interesting concept. So we've mentioned this uh, before on the podcast. Neoteny is this process of animals reaching adult stage, but retaining a lot of their juvenile features. Yeah. You grow to adulthood, but you still either look like or have characteristics of your baby form. Right. Axolotls are a famous example. Those are a type of salamander that still has gills and is very aquatic in the adult stage, which most salamanders lose when they become adults. As for moths or butterflies that do this, the answer is yeah, kind of. <laughs> so I did some searching, and yes, neoteny has been known in a number of different groups of moths and butterflies. The examples I came to were moths in the Geometridae family. These are geometer moths, but you may know the more famous name is assigned to their larval stage, inchworms. Oh. There are a number of species in this group that have wingless females. <gasps> really? Yep. They don't develop wings. They are crawling moths. Weird. Now, I did find a picture of one of these, of a fall canker worm. The female moth has no wings, but it doesn't really look like a caterpillar. It looks like a moth without wings. Yeah, that's what I'm picturing. It's got, yeah, it's got that moth-shaped body. Because you still got that plump abdomen and that the legs up toward the front. Right. Another group, Lymantriidae, the tussock moths, also have some wingless females, and I th did find a photo of one, I don't know what species it was, that does indeed just look like a fuzzy caterpillar. Weird. That the male looks like a moth, and then the adult female just looks like a caterpillar. Weird. Now, these are metamorphosing. Yes. They do go through metamorphosis, it's just that they emerge without wings. <laughs> See, now I'm picturing at the end of the bug's life, uh, <laughs> it's like uh, Heinrich. I mean, Heinrich finally metamorphoses. <laughs> I'm a beautiful butterfly. You all look like little ants. <laughs> now, the famous group for doing this is the family Psychidae, bagworms. Oh. Bagworms, larvae, so the caterpillars, construct cases for themselves out of silk and environmental stuff, just dirt and sand and leaves and things. And they create a little case to pupate within. Among bagworms, it is extremely common, apparently, like half of them, for the females to basically never stop being...
being pupa-like. <laughs> that they metamorphose, but when they're done pupating, they don't have wings, and sometimes they don't have mouth parts or functioning legs, and oftentimes the body segments are poorly defined or differentiated. They're basically a larva-shaped body full of eggs. Whoa. To be fertilized by males. Weird. Now again, they are technically metamorphosing, so they're not skipping metamorphosis. There yes. are insects that do that, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I didn't find any examples within Lepidoptera. Although if there, it would not surprise me at all. Yes. If we after we post this episode, if somebody comments and goes, actually, this one species, because yeah, for sure. Yeah. But yeah, bagworms are apparently very well known for caterpillar to pupa to an adult that that's basically just a pupa that doesn't do anything but sit there and make eggs that's so bizarre now because they exist we don't have to speculate on what could lead to that sort of thing but there has been discussion of what leads to that sort of Mm -hmm, thing mm -hmm. winglessness in adults in these kind of cases is often associated with uh habitats like forests Mm -hmm. that you have places where you can hide or hang out or crawl around and in the case of things like the bagworms an explanation that i've seen put forth for this is that if you can get away with just not functioning much as an adult, you can put all that energy that you would have otherwise spent developing useless things like wings and legs yep. into making eggs and developing babies. Well, and like, also, you know what's a real high-energy activity? Flying. It sure is. Like, defying <laughs> gravity takes a f- burns a few calories. <laughs> And it's not uncommon for insects in their adult stage to not really do much mm-hmm. but mate. Yes. Right? Mayflies are the famous example where many of them are, as adults, don't even have mouth parts. Exactly. Like, I, I know there's a lot of cicadas like that where it's like, they mm-hmm. can't eat. They yeah. are here to scream, <laughs> find a mate, and make babies. Yep. And then that's it. You have you have done it. You, you have accomplished your mission. So, yeah, it, it, it really is... In that very cold way that natural selection often is. And efficiency, a matter of efficiency. Yep. <laughs> yeah, if if you don't develop into an adult shape, you can be an egg factory. Yeah, well, if the ultimate end goal is to pass on your genes, and if you can make more eggs by not being moth or butterfly shaped, mm-hmm. then you get to be a sausage that just makes babies. <laughs> there was a, I did see one picture of one of these bagworms, and it was the adult female next to the case. So it had emerged from the case. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like you'll see a cocoon is left behind. So it had emerged. So there was the empty case and then the adult. And my goodness, at a quick glance, I could not have told you which one was which. <laughs> <laughs> it just looks like the same thing. Just two big maggots. <laughs> Uh, the the thing that kind of baffles me with this group is one of the the key changes that happens between caterpillar and butterfly or moth is for those that continue to eat as adults, their mouth parts significantly change. You go from yeah, a proboscis. chewing caterpillar mouth part to grind up plants to a straw-like... A silly straw. ...mouth part for eating nectar. And it is interesting to me that we haven't seen, that, at least that to my knowledge, there aren't adult... Lepidopterans that have kept the chewing mouth parts. Oh, yeah, I don't know. Like, that would also be a form of neoteny 
Yeah. Like, there's no plant eating, as in, like, chewing butterflies or moths. Like, we always hear about moths eating clothes, but those are the caterpillars eating your clothes. Right. Like, not the adults. Unless I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. Uh, you know, it's so funny. I bet you're wrong. I'm probably wrong. I bet you. There's so many of these right? things. <laughs> There's got to be at least one. There's got to be. I want a butterfly that can bite. <laughs> <laughs> Just swarming in like termites. June, thank you so much for asking that question. That was, that's fascinating. It's, it's a really interesting concept, especially to think in a metamorphosing group. Right. Thank you, June, for submitting your question. Hey, if you're a patron of a, of the, the right level, the family level and up, you can submit a patron question. So if you haven't, or if you've got one stewing around in your mind, go ahead and do it. You should get a message that has a link to the form where you can submit. Thanks, as always, to all of our patrons for their support. Thanks to our new patrons that we announced at the beginning of the episode. Thanks to everyone who requested rhinos. This was a ton of fun. Yeah, literally. Several tons of fun. Yes, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> a barrel-chested rhino of fun. <laughs> a paraterotherium <laughs> worth of fun. Uh, hey, uh, we're going to do some extra stuff at the end of the year. Keep your eyes out for our end-of-the-year Q&A, where we will be answering cues that have been submitted by all different of our listeners. This is the last episode of 2021, so beyond the end-of-the-year Q&A, we will see you next year. As always, check out the blog post for more links and pictures for more information. Thanks, as always, for listening. And we hope everybody has a happy end of the year. Yeah, enjoy your holidays and celebrations. Enjoy your new year. All that good stuff. We release episodes every fortnight. Five years running almost. (laughs) The next fortnight uh, will be next year. And I, you know... Boy, I wish I had something profound to say about that. Yeah, you're supposed to be all meaningful and introspective at the end of the year with stuff. Yeah. You know, have something uh, uh, poignant to say. Yeah. So let's all, let's take a moment to imagine that I said something profound. I want all of you say something profound now. (laughs) Reply, comment on this episode. No, to whoever's sitting next to you or across (laughs) from you, whether you know them or not. Give them, give them some meaningful messages to take into the new year. Yeah, something like a happy new year message. Uh, wish them well. Tell them you hope that next year is better than this year. Yeah. <laughs> That's like a universal, that, that'll probably be easy. All right, yep. Yeah. And I guess we'll see you all at the gym. <laughs> uh, you won't see me. Nope. No, sir. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.